0: Welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 34. I'm Nick Dixon, and I'm joined by the travel-obsessed Toby Young. Coming up, Tucker Carlson gets fired from Fox, Andrew Bridgen is booted out of the Conservative Party, and Diane Abbott goes full Diane Abbott. Plus our top stories of the week, and of course, peak woke. But Toby, I thought we have to start with old Tucker Carlson. Shock news, getting sacked from Fox News. He was the best thing on there. Fox News is now going to be exclusively shouty blonde haired women ranting from well within the Overton window saying things like I'm all for live and let live but maybe drag queen midwives is going a bit far you know that's where I see it these people who are just like the progressivism of five years ago your Laura Ingraham's and your Tommy Lawrence and stuff. don't get me wrong they look amazing professional presenters much better than me on GB but they're not very interesting whereas Tucker was the best thing about Fox and I love his his monologues which are always things like you know I haven't got the answers. I'm not an intellectual. I'm a talk show host. But they've been lying to Americans for years, and you should be angry about that. You're right. You know, it was always that kind of thing. It was like it, for years, actually. And if you're angry, well, you should be. It was. It's always that kind of thing. And he was brilliant monologues. And um, and he did things like he talked about what's going to happen when white people are a minority in the future in America. Though he rolled back on that a bit and start, stopped stop doing that. He talked about what really happened in January 6th, and he was just a unique voice. Very powerful broadcaster. And there are all kinds of theories about why he's gone, Toby. I'll just quickly run through them and you can pick your favorite. There's the BlackRock theory, which you've mentioned, where they they suddenly bought more shares in Fox. There's the Dominion theory, that it cost Fox uh, $787.5 million to settle a lawsuit with Dominion voting systems. And that that was because of things Tucker had said, it seemed. There was the Abby Grossman theory, where this former producer is mouthed off saying, oh, discrimination, blah, blah, blah. You can tell how seriously I take that one, but it's it's always one of those. Um, And there are other theories just like, well, he was generally too much for them, too hot to handle. You know, there's been rumors for months or even years that he was going to go at some point. And there's rumors he's going to be president, vice president. He's going to go to Daily Wire. He's going to do his own thing. And lastly, while we're doing all that, lastly, there is a theory that he's going to be benched and he won't actually be able to do his own thing because he's on a, a $1.6 million a month contract, but they're saying they don't, in this thing I read, they don't want Tucker going anywhere. They're going to force him to sit on the bench for months as they recover from his departure. And he essentially won't be able to criticize them. He has a non-disparagement clause, but nor will he be able to do his own thing. So in, so Tucker has hired Brian Friedman, and as has Don Lemon, who was also sacked, to represent them against their networks. And he represented Megyn Kelly. And, uh, and it's going to be a similar thing where Tucker's going to try and get free using this tough lawyer. That's what I've heard. Any comment on any of that?
1: Yeah. um, Well, just just, just before we get into that, um, your reference to me being travel obsessed is because I'm currently in Canada, which is why the podcast is a day late. I've been traveling across the Canadian Rockies on a very fancy train called the Rocky Mountaineer with fantastic big uh, bay windows uh, on either side. So you can see this majestic scenery unfolding. Uh, it's fantastic. It's, 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 I'm doing it as a travel piece for this new Spectator travel supplement. So that's why we're a day late. Sorry it's an incredible that, view. Because- an incredible view. We are a day late.
0: Entirely Toby's fault. And um, But you are cashing in on this. I was was saying just before we started this old-fashioned thing, where used to be a a massive magazine piece in the nineties. Get paid loads of money, get loads of free food and travel. Is it kind of like that? Is it like the old days?
1: Well, minus the get loads of money. I think it'll be the usual (laughs) spectator (laughs) ropes. Okay. Um, uh, But um, uh, yeah, uh, my 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 um, my uh, the only take um, I have on Tucker's departure, which I don't think I've seen anywhere else is that um, it, it reflects the fact that Fox News is dependent, um, its business model um, means it's dependent on the patronage of big advertisers. And for at least five years, various activist campaign groups have been trying to uh, get advertisers uh, to stop advertising on Tucker Carlson tonight because they object to the things Tucker says on that show. And I think it's been quite successful. I think the campaign to defund Tucker Carlson tonight to persuade big advertisers to boycott his show has been quite effective. but until now um, uh, Fox News has withstood that pressure. Um, they haven't backed down, haven't sorry they haven't caved into it. Um, but I think the embarrassment uh, for the Murdochs, Rupert and Lackland. So Rupert's the chairman of the Fox Corporation, which is the parent company, and Lackland, his son, is the CEO. I think the embarrassment of having to settle the Dominion lawsuit um, uh, means that they're no longer willing to take that hit, the hit of losing advertising revenue, on Tucker's behalf. So they've decided, I think, for probably commercial reasons, to ditch him in the hope that the channel will probably do better uh, with big advertisers, particularly now that BlackRock, that, you know, Uh, Own shares in a lot of the companies that advertise on Fox News has become a bigger shareholder in the Fox Corporation. Um, So I I think I think I think I think that's a factor, and that that points to why it's smart of Elon Musk to try and move Twitter from an advertising-funded platform to a subscription-funded platform. Um, Subscription-funded platforms like Netflix. Um, are able to defend free speech and defend their stars more easily than advertiser-funded television networks like Fox because they're more susceptible. Fox and you know Twitter until now have been more susceptible to these kind of stop-funding hate campaigns. Um, uh, so I think it, it, the departure, the defenestration of Tucker Carlson points to why it's smart of, of, of Elon Musk to try and sell blue ticks and shift... Twitter to a subscription-based model, so it becomes more like Netflix. And we saw, we saw how that gives Netflix the ability to withstand activist pressure when the CEO um, faced down the activist employees who demanded um, that the Dave Chappelle special be pulled from the air because Dave Chappelle's a transphobe. He basically said no. Twitter uh, Netflix is um, uh, caters to a wide range of different tastes and viewpoints, and if you don't like that, take a hike. And the protest fizzled out, um, but the Murdochs can't easily face down activists in the same way because the activists are quite effective at getting their company defunded. So I think hmm. I think that I think that's that that's a factor, and I think it points to why Elon Musk is smart to to, to try and sell blue blue ticks.
0: So you think they really would lose their biggest asset? and and see their stock price fall, which I believe it has, just because of fears about advertising, I'm not totally convinced. I mean, I do feel that these companies don't value their talent. I won't mention any names, but I, I feel like in general, media companies don't <laughs> value their talent enough. I don't know if anyone does really in, in this business. Um, interesting about Twitter, though, people are now posting Twitter videos, including Matt Walsh posting the full episode on Twitter because he's been demonetized by YouTube. And that's something I did with my Andrew Bridgen episode because I thought it, it's too safe and effective treatment heavy to go on youtube so um, i've trained myself to not even say the word i say safe and effective treatment now it's too controversial for youtube so i put it straight on twitter unfortunately that led to a a certain matthew someone trying to get me (laughs) sued and bridging sued because the problem with putting full episodes on twitter is then enemies can much more easily just see them and and read them and try and uh, watch them and try and get you sued and things like that. Whereas on YouTube they're less likely to actually bother going to visit them. But yeah, that's interesting that you say about Musk going for a subscriber platform. We'll talk about that later, probably. Netflix, it is easier for them because they are leftist. I know what you mean. They have some disgruntled employees, but they're still on the side of the regime. So it is easier to defend themselves against these things. You know, they're not like GB very much in the advertiser firing line or Fox. Do you think it's really analogous?
1: Well, I think I think I think Netflix would be more vulnerable to activist pressure um, if it was advertiser funded rather than subscription based. Um, and I think that's that's the problem with a lot of these big mainstream media channels. The reason they broadly speaking stay within the Overton window um, and have difficulty accommodating, you know people like Tucker who are outside the Overton window is precisely because they are, Financially dependent on big advertisers, and big advertisers are very nervous um, about having their brands adjacent to these kind of right-wing firebrands um, because it, it renders them susceptible to activist pressure.
0: Yeah, and it's easy to withstand employee pressure. Although you know, Twitter capitulated somewhat. Yeah, these these woke companies all have woke employees, of course, and that is pressure. But it's less pressure than advertising boycotts.
1: Yeah. I could see right, but I think I think if yeah, the the woke employees I imagine at Netflix, um, if Netflix was advertiser funded, would have you know got their friends at various NGOs and lobby groups to try and get Twitter, sorry, get Netflix demonetized if it didn't ditch Dave Chappelle, but they couldn't do that, so they were limited in how much pressure they could bring onto the c-suite to to dump Chappelle. Uh, I think obviously another 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 factor I mean you mentioned that the, the stock price in Fox fell good point um, but another factor may be that um, uh, Lachlan Murdoch um, uh, is hoping to sell Fox News uh, or indeed sell the Fox corporation. You know in Toto uh, and that may be why Blackrock has brought a bit a bigger share in the corporation because they know it's soon going to be put on the block uh, and it may be that you know when I mean, the, the, for a long time um, the expectation has been that when Rupert Murdoch dies um, uh, the the children um, are going to sell off some of these big media assets because they don't they don't they don't like you know the, the politics of of, of of the Sun um, and you um, you know uh, Fox News, uh, and I think I, I think that I think that that's likely, and um, uh, and it may be that it was easier if they do want to put Fox News on the block uh, for um, Tucker to, to to be fired um, when Rupert's still alive, so when that they can't be accused of, of, of only doing it in order to sell Fox, you know, after Rupert dies. So maybe it's preparation; it's part of a kind of preparation for selling Fox News when Murdoch dies. And it, he can't be that long. I mean, he's what is he ninety four, and um, just called off his marriage. Maybe, maybe he's had a diagnosis and he ain't much longer for this world. And he's kind of you know cleaning house before bequeathing to his children these assets that they intend to sell.
0: Interesting theory. He's ninety two, yeah. Um, all right. So the question is, what's what about the post era? Firstly, who's going to replace him? I mean, I am in discussions. I don't know how much I can say about it at this point. You know, a lot of people are saying it has to be Nick Dixon. There's no one else. We, you know, that we've looked at it and. I, you know, it could be. I mean, I it's a bit of a poison chalice because I don't want to be the Trevor Noah of Fox News. You know, Trevor Noah, when he <laughs> followed John Stewart, was terrible. Plus, there's a bit of an issue because I haven't had the safe and effective treatment. Could I actually get into America? So we're working out some things on that. I think I'm a good shout, but for those concerns, I think um, I can't think of many other people that could really replace him. Then this follow-up question, where would he go? tucker next is he gonna go and be president or be daily wire and third question is he really benched do you believe that bench theory would he have really signed a contract that that led to him getting sidelined like that
1: yeah i don't know um i can't imagine him kind of um going dark for you know for months i imagine he'll capitalize on this moment in some way and join the daily wire or join another News broadcaster. Uh, maybe he'll join GB. Uh, and that would be fantastic. Uh, w- one question I had about Tucker I don't know if you know the answer to this, but um, we're used to seeing um, people like Bill Meyer, David Letterman, even Johnny Carson uh, deliver a monologue before, the, before their show begins as part of the kind of format. Uh, but those were all kind of um, chat shows. Um, Tucker Carlson's show, it's like a sort of somewhere, it, it's like a hybrid of a kind of um, talk show and a kind of, um, news and current affairs show, isn't it? It's like sort of somewhere between, um, I don't know, 60 minutes and David Letterman. Um, but I think the, the monologue, um, as part of the 60 minutes format as, as a prelude to a news and current affairs, 60 minute, 90 minute show, that's an innovation. And I think, Didn't that begin with Tucker? And it's interesting now, you see it on GB News now, you know, when you have these kind of it's sort of this hybrid somewhere between chat show host and news and current affairs anchor. You have kind of like, you know, when Nigel Farage introduces his show, it's always preceded by a monologue, Ditto Jacob Rees Morgus. Mark Stein used to do it that way too. But I think that originated, am I wrong? Did that originate with Tucker? Did he create that kind of hybrid between kind of talk show with a bit of humor thrown in? various kind of high-profile guests but very much along news and current affairs line rather than rather than linked to kind of what movie's coming out next week
0: yeah it's a good question it may have been that john stewart started it from the other angle a comedy show that was part serious news and the, and followed by john oliver and that Tucker cup copied it from the other direction let's do a monologue in a serious news show because I, I think they i think you know he had that famous exchange didn't he with john stewart years ago on Crosstalk. I mean, maybe Crosstalk used to have a monologue. I think it was called Crosstalk. And um people felt John Stewart had won and all this. But 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 that was years ago. And then i feel like probably those comedy shows, satirical shows, started that maybe, and maybe he took it and brought it into news as an innovation. So you might be right. He may be the first person to have done it in a news-based show in that sense. Yeah, that's certainly possible. And um and when you and he talks about being a writer and writing that monologue every day. And and people have speculated will he go back to magazine journals? It seems there's a bit of a step down, doesn't it? He, he could just end up with a Substack, like a really good Substack that <laughs> just
1: rakes it in. Kameshi, yeah, he could make a lot of money from a Substack, yeah, particularly seems if it includes, you know, video clips. Uh, and of course, he might run for office. That's that's uh, that's another rumor, isn't it? Uh, I did maybe say VP or president. VP, could be it could be Trump's VP. Um, no, some Instead of those messages of make that questionable. <laughs>
0: Do you see some of the mes- messages where he says he, he hates Trump and he's he's sick of talking about him every night and so on? Have you seen those?
1: Uh, yeah, and and that, those supposedly um, some of the messages that were disclosed, you know, as part of the Dominion voting machine lawsuit, um, were quite rude about you know other people at Fox News too, and he used what the c word, I think, to describe. Um, Another member of staff, and um, uh, and that, that that supposedly is is a factor in his defenestration, according to some reports. Um, but he definitely used the F word. Week. Sorry,
0: I, can I just say he definitely used the F word, yeah. res- responding to the management, and he also said called Trump a demonic force and said we're very very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. Although I see him, he said in, in his podcast with, on full send podcast that he is a very emotional person who just responds and just says what's in his mind. So I don't know if he like really hates Trump, or if it was just in that moment. It'd be pure speculation. Sorry, Toby, what were you going to ask?
1: I was going to pick you up on um, what this says about the credibility of the Steel conspiracy theory. Naturally, I brought this up with James Stellingpole yesterday, yeah. and he was he got very cross. Um, but t- t- surely, um, uh, if, if there's any basis to the steel conspiracy theory, if... If, if Fox News has evidence that Dominion colluded with the Democrats in order to defraud Trump of the presidency by you know, interfering in ballots. Um, if there was any evidence, then Fox wouldn't have settled for $787 million. They would have fought it out in court. But uh, this suggests, doesn't it, the fact that the Murdochs decided to settle and and Dominion has emerged, you know, um, uh, as, uh, as clean, doesn't that suggest that there's not much basis to this deal?
0: Well, not necessarily. I mean, I heard a thing I mean, for one, there's various ways the election could have been rigged. I mean the, the the Dominion is just one of them. But but I also heard somewhere, I'm trying to find it now, that, that Murdoch couldn't be bothered going down to Delaware. <laughs> like he's ninety two, as you said. I just said one thing I saw suggested he couldn't really be bothered dealing with it and just decided to settle instead. I have to find that. But um, but you know, so it doesn't necessarily so
1: rich that it that he'd prefer yeah. to spend a <laughs> ne- close to a billion dollars rather than make a slightly inconvenient <laughs>
0: That's what it implied. <laughs> That's what it implied. It just was like he didn't want to bother going down. I mean, it's possible, isn't it? If you're ninety two and you're that rich, and you're, you're all you can do is leave it to your kids anyway, you're just like, oh, I'll just pay it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, maybe the concern, you know, uh, maybe his concern uh, was not that. I mean, I'm arguing against myself now. Was was not that Fox couldn't make a decent fist of um, standing up allegations about. Dominion voting machines, maybe his concern was that in the course of the trial, it would emerge that all these high profile Fox stars like Tucker Carlson didn't believe the steal for a second and were kind of Bulking, bridling about the fact that they were having to kind of pay lip service to it on air to satisfy their crazy viewers like James Dellingpole. Um, And and that would have been embarrassing. That might have tarnished the Fox brand. It would have said, like, Fox supposedly is, you know, they're fearless truth tellers. That's all part of their brand. They're the only news network prepared to stand up to you know the the forces of darkness if it turns out that they don't believe any of this kind of uh, any of the conspiracy theories they're touting and they're just doing it to kind of pander to their kind of um uh, uh red state viewers uh, that that would be quite embarrassing that might tarnish the brand make the viewers kind of more distrustful in future
0: yeah it's possible i mean also a judge said that he has a that fox has a credibility problem days before so you know, you can imagine they just didn't want to get dragged into it. I mean, a long court case about this—it's probably not ideal for them in many ways, is it? It, it? it wouldn't be the first person to settle out of convenience. Who's it, it, settling doesn't mean that you're—you you don't believe your case. It often just means you've decided to settle because it's less stress, you know. Or it's—you know—you may as well settle. Your lawyer says you can't win, or whatever. It doesn't necessarily imply. Doesn't mean there wasn't a steal, Toby. But I see that, of course, you, you're about to say that. And um, you know, I'll always believe in the steel, probably. But uh, um, I'm telling, I'm worried about even talking about the steel. And I keep thinking, oh, are we putting this on YouTube? But of course, we're not. You can't even talk about the steel. But um, yeah. So I mean, the, yeah. So maybe Murdoch just decided to settle. I was going to say one other thing about that. I can't remember. Oh well. I feel like.
1: Well, with with Don yeah. Lemon's departure immediately afterwards, that was slightly odd, wasn't it? And mm-hmm. my take on that is that um, CNN, who've you know, who've been having. A bit of trouble with Don Lemon for some time, Um, and uh, you know this has been brewing. That they're unhappy with him. He supposedly made some um, sexist remarks, kind of behind the camera as well as in front of the camera. Um, He there have been complaints about bullying and high-handed treatment and whatnot. So he was on his way out, um, and and they saw this as a great opportunity to get rid of him because they thought, oh. The big news, you know, the news that's going to completely dominate the headlines is going to be Tucker's departure from Fox. So we can sneak out our news, like you know, tre- tre- like uh, you know, getting it out under the wire, burying it underneath the Tucker story. But in fact, it had the it, ha- it had the had the opposite effect. It effectively amplified both stories because it was such a kind of an extraordinary coincidence that 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 that, that both these big network anchors had been fired at the same time yeah and they both got the same lawyer
0: <laughs> yeah very interesting and and Don Lemon no part of you imagines Don Lemon is a good person or nice to people behind the scenes I mean when I hear those things I'm not surprised at all um with uh, with well that reminded me of something I was going to say about Tucker but I can't remember it's Tucker Tucker's not an obvious sort of man of the people either he's a he's a you know he's come from this sort of ultra privileged background but he's sort of gone that way recently hasn't he he's been much more traditional, but but the, but this John Malone who took over CNN, I think it's due with that. I mean, he got rid of Brian Stelter. Now he's got rid of Don Lemon. And the funny thing here is Stelter says that John Malone wants to make the network more like Fox. With Tucker going, Fox becomes more like CNN. So maybe there's some agenda, whether it's from John Malone, whether it's from Murdoch, maybe they've got together. Who knows what it is? Isn't there agenda to just bring it back to one central bland blob again and maybe bring the media back to that?
1: So um, yeah, maybe there's a potential merger in the offing between CNN and Fox and the condition on each side was you have to get rid of your star man um, before we'll even come to the table to talk about this.
0: Right. And it would just be some one like uni party, like what the just one news channel that represents the American government and just re- repeats the talking points. Could be
1: yeah no no normie news network NNN. Normie,
0: yeah and, um, and meanwhile tucker will do a podcast with don lemon and i said on twitter they've been building this beef for years they they just played as toby it was like a boxer promoting a fight they used to call him don Lemon every night and they hated each other but that was all just a show and now they're going to get together do a podcast tucker of course because of his clause in his contract will have to be a deep fake and won't be able to admit it's actually him so it'll be a deep John lemon with a deep fake tucker doing a podcast what do you think of this
1: yeah no i think uh, yeah it would be like um rory stewart and alistair campbell toby oh, right, young yeah. and james dellingpole writ large wouldn't it it would be it would be yeah i thought th- it'd be a very popular podcast but
0: uh, i thought you were comparing it to campbell because rory stewart's a little, a little puppet he's just sort of not real carry on <laughs>
1: I thought. I think. Uh, I mean, Tucker started out in television on Crossfire, which was you know him battling with someone on the other side of the political divide, talking about that week's news. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I imagine he could kind of fit very easily into that format. That would be yeah. That someone should. I, I expect. I expect he's got offers up the wazoo, and I'm sure that's one of them.
0: Yeah. All right. Um, I think that's Tucker pretty much dealt with, isn't it? Do you want to quickly? do this BuzzFeed story, which seemed big a week ago when I noted which topics we should do, but it doesn't seem that big now. But it is worth briefly noting quite amusing BuzzFeed shutdown. And it's related to all this American media. BuzzFeed, you know, they refused this massive offer or they couldn't come to terms with Disney for like a one billion offer. Now it's worth far less than that. And they've messed up and um, they've had to shut down pretty much. And the, the owner, Jonah Peretti, had a funny, there's a funny sentence in The Guardian. Jonah Peretti suggested there may not be a sustainable business model for high quality online news, and I thought, well, what's that got to do with Buzzfeed? I mean, like some of their stories, <laughs> they, just, they did a story about Barbie's friend Midge. They did a story about what if you've had a an overdose on cannabis. They do a story like, I'm 24 and I feel like my life's over. Like, I'm like they did like I'll just these were just some of the ones I saw online. It's absolute nonsense. You know, 22 reasons your you know grandma shouldn't be invited to Thanksgiving. It was just all sort of nonsense, but they used to be a big deal didn't they you know back when house of cards was was out the kevin spacey one and it was like buzzfeed like you know they were thought to be like the cool new thing in media uh, and another funny quote from the article in the guardian was peretti said he regretted not holding the company to higher standards for profitability aka making money <laughs> I that was funny
1: <laughs> I know, it's incredible part he's trying to, he's trying to spin this as, uh, yeah, we, we're just, we're just, we're just too good for this world. Um, you know, our standards are too high. Our, we, we have too much journalistic integrity and it's hard to, to, to make money from good journalism these days. I mean, it's just, we should have been more mercenary and commercial. It's like, it couldn't be more mercenary and commercial. I mean, they invented the listicle, which has probably done more to damage, you know, um, <laughs> journalism in the past 10 years than almost anything else. Um, and yeah, everything they run is, you know, is 10 reasons for this, 10 reasons for that. I mean, I try to commission someone to write 10 reasons I don't regret the demise of BuzzFeed News for the Daily kept it, but couldn't find anyone to write it. I think people are so bored with BuzzFeed News now. I should have done that. Um, but should yeah, and it, 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 it sort of, it was, it was, um, and it, it sort of was, I don't know if it sort of, was single-handedly responsible for one of the reasons, you know, for the decline of of of, of news, um, which is uh, the kind of insertion of woke agendas into news coverage. So almost all their stories, even though they were supposedly news stories, had this kind of woke spin on them, and they were kind of. And that's that's been that's been one of the kind of reasons for the kind of collapse in trust um, for mainstream news publishing companies and websites Um, and I think they were partly responsible for that I mean they've just done colossal damage and it's impossible not to feel you know any schadenfreude about their decline particularly you know um, this delicious detail that uh, Peretti turned down close to a billion dollars as an offer for his company because he thought he could get more when it became even more successful Um, uh, and now you know let's hope he ends up bankrupt
0: yeah 18 reasons why you might regret your hubris. Yeah. Kat Kat Tenbarge here, who's a tech and culture reporter for NBC News, said, This shutdown announcement for BuzzFeed News, a popular and Pulitzer-winning news organization, highlights the failings of the online information economy. People may want information that is newsworthy and accurate, but by design, platforms don't value it. And then Carl, Carl Benjamin replied, I don't know, man. I looked at BuzzFeed's front page, and I don't think your description really matches the reality. This is all pointless clickbait trash. And some of the examples were why Barbie's best friend Midge was once removed from shelves, or yes, you can overdose on weed. Here's what to do if you overdo it, or help. The world is on fire, <laughs> and I feel like my life is over at 24. I mean, Madison Beer. A it's, like, it's like it's gro- like go, it goes on. <laughs>
1: it, it, it's like it's like the it's like you know the woke version of the National Enquirer um, has run out of money, and the owners are trying to present it as. You know, um, a completely impartial online version of, you know, the Wall Street Journal. Um, it's extraordinary the disconnect between the way they're trying to spin this and the reality of Buzzfeed News is just huge.
0: Yeah. So that was Lols. Um, and in a, in other similar news, I mean, w- all these people have gone this week. Tucker's gone. Lemon's gone. Buzzfeed's gone. Alyssa Heiner Side has gone from Anheuser Bush, and she was the I think it was a, was it VP of marketing. And uh, she was the one that said, "Hey, Bud Light's too fratty. We need to fix their image by employing Dylan Mulvaney in what was the worst marketing move in American history, probably, depending on how you see it. What do you think, Toby?
1: Yeah, um, uh, I'm not sure she's gone, hasn't she? Um, she's has, sort is she on a leave of absence? I mean, it's it's it sounds like yeah, it, so- it sounds like um, it sounds like she's she's been forced out, but uh, they haven't they haven't sort of admitted to that. It's funny, isn't it? How." I remember I mean, all these people, whether it's Don Lemon, Tucker Carlson, Alyssa has uh, busch Bush, um they never just come out and say they were fired, you know, and when they're asked what happened, they don't admit it either. I mean, it's like, uh, no one, I mean, but no one believes the spin. Everyone knows they were fired. And it just kind of extends the story. You know, if you're hoping to make it a smaller story by saying we've parted ways or by mutual agreement, we've decided to go on different pathways. Um, uh, you know, it, it, just means there's another shoe to drop in the story, which was, Oh no, in fact, they were fired. Um, but I remember when I lost my, I think, uh, 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 first job on Fleet Street, which was working for The Times, Um, this veteran journalist took me out for a drink and said, so what happened? And I said, oh, well, and I started kind of, you know, uh,
2: uh,
1: trotting out the the normal euphemisms. I've decided to take my career in a different direction. Um, I wanted to have more time to focus on my own freelance work. And he was like, Toby, a word of advice. If you're ever fired and someone asks you what happened, look them in the eye and say, I was fired. Anything else just makes you look weak. And that stood me in really good stead when I was subsequently fired from The Guardian, Sunday <laughs> the Times, sun. The Observer, The Sun. Yeah, it has been it was great advice. So whenever I'm fired, I just say, I was fired. I don't beat around the bush because no one ever believes you.
0: How do you get fired from all these places? I knew you got fired from The Sun because you went off to Kenya because you're travel obsessed, as I said in my intro, always taking holidays. <laughs> I've tried to create, by the way, listener, a sort of toxic non-holidays culture on this podcast toxic masculinity and we famously did a christmas episode and to be fair toby did show up and do it even though he was stuck in a weird airbnb in wales this is what we create and anyone that does take a day off or because of this episode will come out a week later toby's had to apologize to the whole board and he has to they have to stand there and say i've been gay i'm gay that's how it works so we <laughs> do have a toxic masculine hard work culture but toby you're such a hard worker too in general how are you fired from all these places
1: uh, well, <laughs> well, um, I it, 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 the truth is that um, I was I was employed by the Times and I was fired I was fired from the Times because um, every morning when I got into work um, I would sit down and try and log into the kind of um in-house computer system as the editor, uh, this kind of um uh, foul-mouthed um Glaswegian called Charles Wilson. Um, and uh, and I would and I would and I would just I would try and figure out what his password was for the first five minutes every day, and eventually I hit on it, and it was top man, and I immediately <laughs> then got into the system as him, and I could see all these things I wasn't <laughs> able to see before. And, I, and I, I had this kind of rather supercilious boss in the Times Features Department called Richard Williams uh, went on to work for The Guardian. I think he still does work for The Guardian. And um, and and he had this kind of open top MG, had this kind of long flowing hair, fancied himself as a bit of a, an Adonis character. And, um, and the first thing I did when I got onto the editor's into the into the system as the editor was move your effing car it's in my space i sent it to my boss and it came up you know with charlie wilson's name underneath the message and he immediately leapt up like he'd been hit with a cattle prod ran to the car park and moved his car and i thought whoa i'm gonna have some fun here and i wreaked havoc you know at the times for about <laughs> a week masquerading as the editor and uh, the it police tracked me down and i was summoned to the managing editor's office and i thought well you know I'm going to get a slap on the wrist, but secretly they're going to be really impressed that I've got these hacking skills, which you know are an essential <laughs> attribute of a modern reporter. And they just handed me the—I was met by a security guard who handed me the contents of my office drawer in a kind of see-through plastic bag and escorted off the premises. And that was the end of my short career at the Times. So, um, after that, I mean, I—I I was only ever really. Hang on, how old on are you? Was this freelance? The...
0: Was this last year? This I mean, was in uh, 80s,
1: 87, no, 87, so yeah, I was like, just left university, so about that's 23.
0: So, by the way, can I just say, that so, everything about that story is amazing, but the fact that you thought that was a good thing, and the fact that it was such a simpler time that this was the kind of thing you could get away with, it also shows you've always had this rebellious spirit, bordering on kind of mad. But also, how did you find out his password was top man? I mean, you just type in well, different things like, different, like Mission different, Impossible. Different exactly that's, that's such no, a lame just, password just, for the editor that's like you're going yeah. to Andrew Tate's I know, I computer should've... and it's top G or top G1 yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh no I God. think he he, hadn't, he didn't have a very imaginative password and I should have got it sooner I can't believe it took me six months to figure it out but uh,
2: yeah you just
0: have to get into his psychology and so then and then what and then you're going to say since then you've just been sacked for what well uh,
1: after that I mean I, after that I've, I've only ever had kind of you know short term contracts if at all um, so you know, and eventually they come to an end. And I mean, if you're a columnist, you know, uh, even for this, you know, for, for 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 newspaper, you're not likely to last very long. Usually, you don't last much longer than two, three years. So, yeah, I mean, in truth, you know, it's just it's just kind of jumping from one freelance gig to another, failing upwards rather than being fired in every case. Wow. But I think I think if you say, but if you try and explain I think I think the lesson I took from these words of wisdom from this veteran Fleet Street hand were, even if you haven't been fired, even if your contract just hasn't been renewed, uh, or even if you didn't have a contract and they've just decided they no longer t- want to use you, don't say any of that, because that makes it sound like you're trying to make an excuse and kind of dress up something which was quite humiliating. Just look the person in the eye and say you were fired, even if you weren't. So that's been my policy ever since.
0: Oh, wow. Even if you weren't, that's next level. Okay. Well, s- well, certainly the- Anheuser-Busch didn't do this. They said that um, they said that Given the circumstances, Alyssa has decided to take a leave of absence, which we support. So very much the opposite of that. (laughs) It's always their decision. Always their decision. Yeah. (laughs) In reality, she hacked the password, probably, and a Dylan Mulvaney 3. Absolutely ridiculous. So, all right. Very interesting. Always fun to learn about Fleet Street back in the day. So that's pretty much all the American stuff. Now, I thought we'd move on to domestic politics. And obviously, the massive story this week, well, there's been probably three, to be honest. But one of them is Diane Abbott. Going full Diane Abbott, as I described it, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. She is the person that said Mao did on balance more good than harm on BBC One. So we know she can say things like this. So she sent in this letter to the Observer, bizarre letter, really, that was trying to prove that basically she was the biggest victim in the world. And she was, you know, you know, racism against black people was worse than other kinds of racism. So. She said that it's true that many types of white people with points of difference, such as redheads, can experience prejudice, but they're not, all, they're not all their lives subject to racism. In pre-civil rights America, Irish people, Jewish people, and travelers were not required to sit at the back of a bus. And she was responding to this article and you know, saying that Jewish, Irish, and uh, traveler people suffer racism. She would say, no, they don't. In apartheid South Africa, these groups were allowed to vote at the height of slavery. There were no white-seeming people manacled on the slave ships. So, of course, that got her in a lot of trouble, being absolutely mental, and um, quite annoying as well from a a historical perspective. We all know that, obviously, American slavery was bad, but the Ottoman Empire was still, had white slaves decades after American slavery. Of course, slave comes from Slav, which I believe is from the Slav people being enslaved by Spanish Muslims in the 9th century, so... You know, that was that's not the reason she's in trouble. No one cares about that part, of course. It's about no. anti Semitism, everything's anti Semitism. And obviously that is bad and obnoxious and terrible. But it's just it's just to me, there's far more that's obnoxious about it. So then she wrote this apology, which was on the same day as it was published, and she said, I wish to wholly and unreservedly withdraw my remarks and disassociate myself from them. Can you disassociate yourself from stuff you said on the day? It's like, just been published that day. It's like, I disassociate myself from everything I said in the earlier part of this podcast with Toby when I said he was travel obsessed. He, he's actually on a working trip. You know what I mean? It's absolutely absurd. And then she said, the errors arose in an initial draft being sent. Yeah, because you just bash out an insane racist first draft. And then you're like, how did that get sent? So hardly the main point. But overall, Toby, I just wanted to make one overall remark about this, which is people in Labour have said, we can't have this hierarchy of racism. I think uh, Lord, was it Lord Mann said that, yeah. But of course, most of Labour, or many of Labour, do believe in that. It's the woke hierarchy, it's the identity politics hierarchy of oppression. They do believe in that. So the actual furore about this is because of anti-Semitism, it's because she's put her foot in her mouth. But actually, isn't she just saying the quiet part out loud?
1: Yeah, that, that's that's what I mean. That, that's what I was going to say. It, 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 it seems to fit the American political commentator Michael Kinsley's definition of a political gaffe, which is when someone in politics blurts something out, which everyone knows to be true, but which you're not supposed to say. Um, and as you say, this is the surely this is the prevailing orthodoxy, not just within the Labour Party, but within most, you know, institutions in the civil service, universities. This is the woke orthodoxy. There is a hierarchy of oppression and anti-black racism um, is the worst kind. Of, of racism and other forms of racism um, are, are much more mild. And in the case of anti-white racism, it simply doesn't exist. Um, that is the kind of woke orthodoxy and has been for at least 10 years. That is one of the kind of, you know, linchpins of critical race theory, which has permeated every institution and organization in this country and not just in the public sector. So why she should be punished for trotting out what all these you know, almost everyone else in the kind of professional managerial class believes it's a matter of faith, it's slightly baffling. Uh, I suppose it's all part of, you know, Keir Starmer's pretense that the Labour Party is less woke than it is in an effort to make it more electable, because he knows that this woke gobbledygook doesn't play well, particularly not in the red wall seats he hopes to win back. Um, uh, so yeah, that that was sort of baffling. And I couldn't, you know, I'm not surprised that the Observer didn't spot that they had this tremendous scoop, um, you know, um, uh, in plain sight. Um, because, you know, who could have guessed that the Labour Party, which, you know, 99.9% of whose members believe exactly this, would have reacted and said, this is completely unacceptable. Um, so yeah, baffling. But also, I think, you know, uh, we've been debating at the Free Speech Union whether we should weigh in and defend um, Diane Abbott on the grounds that, you know, uh, we are a nonpartisan organization and looks like she's the victim of cancelled culture. Uh, you know, um, uh, I think the reaction has been disproportionate. Uh, it's obviously part of an effort on Keir Starmer's part to kind of push her out of the Labour Party altogether and retire her uh, from <laughs> from the Labour Party. Um, uh, and it does seem a little bit harsh. I mean, it's, it's slightly complicated because I'm not sure, you know, political parties are obliged to uphold freedom of speech. And this will come up, no doubt, when we discuss Andrew Bridgen's defenestration from the Conservative Party, parallel defenestration. I mean, to kick someone out of a university for expressing a dissenting point of view, that's definitely a free speech issue. Um, But to kick someone out of a political party because the leader doesn't like what they've said, that's less clear cut. uh, Because political parties have to be able to enforce message discipline if they're going to, you know, compete with one another and be electorally successful. You can't expect every member of a political party to just say what they like and remain a member in good standing of that political party. You have to give the, you know, the leadership some latitude um, and, you know, the ability to silence some people who are saying things that are off brand or they think are going to damage their prospects. So um, it's not clear cut whether whether Political parties canceling people is an egregious an example of cancel culture, as other other examples where we wouldn't go to bat for the person in question. Um, but uh, there was one other point I wanted to make about this, um, which is um, yeah, I, I feel a little bit sorry for Diane Abbott. Um, uh, not only the fact that she said this and didn't didn't realize that you know it was the quiet part you weren't supposed to say out loud, but also her attempts to kind of do damage control have been absolutely hopeless she's often photographed in doing slightly odd things like wearing odd shoes or drinking on trains i fear that she might not be very well you know she might be suffering from cognitive decline don't know why could be you know um the beginnings of dementia could be because she has a substance abuse problem i don't know but it feels a little unjust for you know people on our side in the culture war, to be reveling in the stupidity um, uh, 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 of this woman when it might be something mental.
0: Hmm. Well, that is quite generous though her because she, I'm not sure she'd extend the same generosity to to, to our side. But I mean, she. one thing, in the COVID um, era, she was one of the few people voting against some of the COVID passport stuff, as I recall, wasn't she, with, with along with Jeremy Corbyn and a few others? But, yes, she was. She so was, that was yeah. good. But... <laughs> she has said some awful things I, but we can yeah we can speculate why um, yeah there was a showing up with the two left shoes or whatever it was or they were different shoes and they were both left or something like that but i do I t- I take your point as for the saying something everyone knows to be true at the risk of being pedantic yeah this is obviously slightly different not that everyone knows to be true but but everything that it's what we know they all think and that's probably why she felt emboldened to say it because mm-hmm. to her in her group it's not that weird to say things like that it's just a normal lefty point they make to each other in lefty woke circles. But the anti-Semitism part is clearly why Starmer is so concerned why why, all, why she has to go mm-hmm. because, of course, Labour have been tarnished with that already. And um, as you say, they're sort of bound, well, bound by collective responsibility and so on. Parties can't necessarily have total free speech. But that is interesting, the free speech thing. I'm a free speech absolutist. So, yeah, I say, yeah, let Diana say her mad things. But, yeah, tactically, if you're the party, of course you have to get rid of her I mean, I guess she'll be like a old Alyssa on a, on a leave of absence. Now it seems like she's not officially gone. She's on a she's on a sort of leave of absence type situation. And maybe we should get on to Bridgen and compare it because I wouldn't want to be a hypocrite. Because yeah, Bridgen said his thing. Diane said his thing. Maybe they should both be able to stay. I certainly think Bridgen should stay because what he said was actually uh, was re- true, which is that vaccine harms are an issue. So. Yeah, let's do Andrew Bridgen, who who has been expelled from the Conservative Party, and he's issued a statement, but apparently the party haven't issued a statement as to why, they've just said that it has happened. And he says, Bridgen, that my expulsion from the Conservative Party under false pretenses only confirms the toxic culture which plagues our political system. Above all else, this is an issue of freedom of speech. No elected member of parliament should ever be penalised for speaking on behalf of their constituents and those who have no such voice or platform. As a vocal critic Of the vaccine rollout, amongst other issues such as net zero, illegal immigration, and political corruption, the party has been sure to make an example of me. I'm grateful for my newfound freedom and will continue to fight for justice, speech, and liberty. I will continue to serve my constituents as I was elected to do and intend to stand again at the next election. And he did he did say to me, I did an interview with him on my podcast, The Current Thing, which you can listen to. It's the only one I didn't put on YouTube because we talked a lot about the safe and effective treatment, but it is on the audio. He did talk about standing again. He's incredibly passionate about his constituency. I've never seen anything like it. He really cares and does so much for his area. So I'm sure he would win if he did stand, if they allow him to stand, unless there's some loophole. But what did you think, Toby? Was this, was this free speech? Was it more about anti-Semitism? Was it the financial issue? Were they using that as a cloak, this financial claim? What do you think?
1: Well, I'm, I was puzzling over Andrew Bridgen's Statement because he says he's been, um, he's you know been expelled from the party, um, under false pretenses, but um, it's not clear what those false pretenses are or what he's referring to. Um, because in the official statement issued by the Conservative Party, it didn't give a reason, as you say. Um, so it's as though Andrew Bridgen has been told privately what the reason is, and he thinks that's not the real reason, but it's odd that he should refer to what he's been told privately as if it's in the public domain and everyone knows what he's talking about. Uh, and I suspect what he's talking about is um, is the fact that the Standards Committee in the House of Commons uh, found that he had breached the House of Commons Standards Code by lobbying, um, uh, breaking the lobbying rules, like taking money from a company to promote that company's interests, in his capacity as an MP. Um, And that may have been referred to in the letter he received from the party, expelling him from the party. But given that the party itself hasn't given that as a reason, it's odd that he should kind of draw attention to that. You know, um, uh, uh, a little bit cack-handed, but um, uh, I suspect, you know, um, uh, that that he's right. um, And the real reason, whatever the reason he's been given, that he's been expelled is because um, he's been, drawing attention to vaccine harms in a way that the leadership of the party clearly find embarrassing. They don't want to be reminded of their aggressive promotion of the vaccines, of the imposition of vaccine passports and vaccine mandates. Uh, Given all the information that's coming out about vaccine harms, they prefer to Forget about that. Put it behind us. Draw a veil over it. Um, and I suspect that's probably the real reason um, he's gone. Um, uh, but I, I, I think, um, uh, you know, is it a free speech issue? Um, it, 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 this often comes up. People. Um, who get into trouble, uh, often for things they've said on Twitter. Uh, uh, they're forced by the Conservative Party either to stand down as council candidates or as withdraw their nomination if they want to become an MP in a particular constituency, or in the most extreme cases, expelled from the party. And um, you know, it's it's there aren't any laws you can appeal for. Very few. So often we've looked at whether they'd have a legal case. Do we think that um, if you took the party to court? So there was this case of the. You know, there, it happened. In, it happens in the Lib Dems a lot, not just the Conservative and the Labour Party. Uh, and there was the uh, Lib Dem candidate who was selected to fight a seat a winnable seat. It was, it was Sutton. So it's currently, I think, a conservative seat, but it's thought to be a very winnable seat for the Lib Dems at the next general election. And this candidate was selected by the local constituency association. And it turned out that he was pro-life because he's an orthodox, long-standing Christian. Um, and uh, as a result, um, the selection there was a kind of deep, he was deselected by the local association. And I had a long conversation with um, uh, a lawyer um, and a a barrister and a solicitor and him and some other people with some expertise in this area. Would he succeed if he brought a case against the party or the local association for deselecting him? Um, And courts generally grant, political parties a great deal of latitude uh, and don't like to intervene in sort of internal party politics um, and don't regard <coughs> uh, things that people say uh, in their capacity as representatives or candidates for political parties as protected by common law free speech protections or article 10 under the European Convention on Human Rights so I think you know I think on balance this probably isn't a free speech issue though I imagine a lot of our listeners will be horrified to hear that uh, Of course, Andrew Bridgen should be allowed to say these things in the House of Commons. Um, And it's important that MPs of all parties should draw attention to vaccine harms and any attempt to (coughs) stop them doing so by, you know, shadow banning them or banning them from social media platforms or ignoring what they say in the mainstream media. All of that is reprehensible and that is a free speech issue. But being expelled from your political party i think I, I i like like you know like the like british judges would be inclined to grant political bodies quite a lot of latitude when it comes to expelling people for saying things that the leadership believe is going to damage their electoral prospects
0: so you're saying it's not a free speech issue, but it's still not good is it it's still not great that you in the conservative party you can't make a statement about vaccine harms and if if you if that's it is the real reason he's been kicked out it's still a bad thing even if you're, I, see, yes. I see your argument. Um, and and yeah, the, the BBC say the Cross-Party Common Standards Committee found that Mr. Bridgen had breached rules by failing to declare his financial interests in mere plantations when writing to ministers about the company. Following an investigation, the committee concluded the PM, the, PM, the MP had shown a careless and cavalier attitude to the rules. So that is probably what he's referring to. I haven't spoken to him. I'd like, maybe I could try and find out. But that, when he says, yeah, false pretenses. Well, yeah, we all know the real reason. And, and the fact that, Matt Hancock got to stand up in the Commons, this ludicrous Pope and Jay, and say, oh, he's anti-Semitic. And Richie was like, yes, he's he's very anti-Semitic. He's terrible. He's not anti-Semitic. He used a clumsy phrase. It was pretty disgusting. And um, he's got far more integrity than Matt Hancock any day, I would say. So I feel bad for Andrew. I think he'll probably go to a claim party or something like that. I mean, there's hints that he'll do that. And he can stand again, and he's very loved in his constituency. So unless there's some red tape that stops him, I think he could win again. I mean, what do you think? You know more about that kind of thing, Toby. Will he he be at a stand? Yeah, no,
1: I don't don't think there'd be anything to prevent him standing either as an independent or as a Reclaim Party candidate. Um, I suppose if he joins the Reclaim Party, he'll come under um, considerable pressure to resign and trigger a by-election. But um, there are plenty of precedents of people who haven't done that when they've... Joined another political party, even though they've been elected as a candidate for another. Um, So I suspect that, um, yeah, that seems like the most likely outcome that he'll join the Reclaim Party, um, and um, uh, or or, or perhaps or perhaps or or maybe the Reform Party, um, uh, and then remain in Parliament until the next election, and then stand under that banner.
0: Well, I've heard more about the Reclaim angle, which the, the strange thing there is, it's basically Lawrence Fox that party, so. And by the way, I just interviewed Alex from Reclaim on my other podcast, Current Thing. Sorry to keep mentioning it, but it's highly relevant. So the um, the, uh, trying to get the numbers up to the same as Weekly Skeptic, guys. So that's basically Lawrence Fox. Now, the reason he won't go to Reform UK is um, Richard Tice had some not particularly pleasant things to say about him, I believe, or didn't take his side. That's what people have told me, because I also did a podcast with Richard Tice, and I'd forgotten about the bridge and stuff, but a few people have replied to me saying, well, I I can't support him after what he said about bridge. And so I'm not sure those two are going to, be able to work together okay. so but i'm sure andrew can win his constituency anyway as long as he's allowed to stand so all right well good luck to andrew bridgen um and it's a pity that's happened but should we move on to rob this was a big story this week rob on all the front pages of course dominic rob resigns he called his treatment a kafka-esque saga and he had many criticisms of, of the committee and i i found them quite compelling i'll just run through them he said normally there's a three-month limit on, on bullying claims, whereas these were stored up for, in some cases, eight months, in some cases, four years, and all brought against him at one time. He said that there were leaks breaching the rules of the inquiry and the uh, Civil, Service, Co- Civil Service Code of Conduct or both. Claims should have been put to him in writing straight away, which they weren't. He says critically, before any cabinet appointment, the cabinet office directory... Director of Propriety, I can't read today, and Ethics Vets Ministers. On four occasions, including in October 2022, when I returned to the Ministry of Justice, I was told I had a clean bill of health. Over four and a half years, I never once swore or shouted at officials. He said that Tomato Gate was also false, the throwing of the prep tomatoes. And he said the inquiry found against him on two issues only after a 17-hour inquiry. First, as Foreign Secretary, I made changes to the personnel conducting the Brexit negotiations on Gibraltar with Spain. The second adverse finding was that the Ministry of Justice, the inquiry gave three instances since September 2021 where my feedback to senior civil servants was overly critical, which, however justified, left those concerned feeling insulted. So because he technically was found to have been committing bullying on just two occasions because he'd said he would resign, in that case he did resign, that was his reason. Maybe behind the scenes he was basically pushed. But pretty absurd, wasn't it, Toby, that insulting civil servants mildly, even though you're, what you're saying is basically right, is a reason to go now. Isn't this a, a hit job from the blob against Rob?
1: It does feel that way, um, uh, certainly. Um, uh, I mean, it's slightly odd, isn't it, that um, e- elected MPs um, can effectively be sacked um, for breaching the civil service code of conduct. It's as though the civil service's internal Code takes priority over the will of the electorate, uh, which we kind of, I suppose, we all knew that really, uh, but uh, it's rare that you see it kind of, you know, so in the open. Um, you know, I, I think it's another example of um, the uh, increasing power of the civil service blob, the Whitehall blob. Uh, and I think one of the reasons it's become so powerful. It really started, I think, in this kind of metastasizing growth of the Whitehall blob and its tentacular influence. Is that the right word? Um, uh, but um, it all began in 2010, I think, with the um, hung parliament of 2010. When there's a hung parliament um, and a coalition um, obviously civil servants are going to have much more power because there's a kind of vacuum at the center where executive power should be um and that 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 that, that, that wasn't really overturned uh, in 2015 by the election result because David Cameron's majority was so small and it was promptly lost when he resigned and Theresa May then we had another hung parliament and this time she was even this time there was an even greater vacuum at the center because she was it was a confidence and supply arrangement with the DUP. It wasn't even a stable coalition. And of course, it collapsed. And you would have thought, well, yes, but that that, that would have ended in 2019 with Boris winning this enormous majority, fantastic mandate, enabled him to get Brexit done, which of course, the Whitehall blob opposed tooth and nail. Um, but Boris frittered away. His authority so quickly, partly as a result of his mishandling of the pandemic um, and disobeying the rules. And then you had kind of a succession of of other prime ministers, neither of whom had much authority. Sunak doesn't even really, can't even claim a mandate within his own party membership, uh, you know, because they elected someone else and she was defenestrated in another Deep state coup. Uh, So, this feels just like another example of the kind of enormous influence and power of the civil service. And it's now, and it sort of almost formalized it. You know, uh, from now on, if you don't comply with our code of conduct, even if you are a minister of, um, you know, uh, the elected party, you know, you're going to lose your job.
0: Yeah, and Rob said the same in, in his column about the the precedent it sets. And I know people in the in the civil service and the extended blob of the Bank of England and so on, and they, they all just hate the Tory government. It, it's very hard to must be very hard to govern with all these people who basically hate you. And Rob says this pres- this precedent sets the playbook for a small number of officials to target ministers who negotiate robustly on behalf of the country, pursue bold reforms, and persevere in holding civil servants to account. If that is now the threshold for bullying in government. It's the people of this country who will pay the price. And I find that hard to disagree with. I mean, I put a tweet out. I can't believe I didn't mention this, Toby. 4,327 likes. I said, the more I look into this Dominic Rob thing, the more convinced I am that bullying took place. The civil service bullied him out of a job. Aren't they the real bullies? I mean, you know, I think they probably are. We don't know. You may know Rob. I don't know him it may be one of those things where if you know him you actually do think he's a bully but um to me it sounds very fishy you know because sometimes there are just bullies who are just awful people in the workplace but this sounds questionable to me i I think it's just a culture of standards that people it's very hard to have a culture of results and standards these days
1: yeah i mean it's um the examples i I haven't read the report but i've read reports about the report and it, it seems like you know he was more or less exonerated. Um, he, he wasn't. He wasn't found guilty of any deliberate bullying. It was unintentional bullying. He wasn't conscious that you know his um, asking civil servants um, to spell things correctly and use English grammar correctly. He wasn't. He didn't think of th- that they would that they would be really upset by that, uh, and that that would constitute bullying in their eyes. It was all unintentional, and when it was pointed out to him that they did find requests to spell words correctly Very psychologically upsetting, Um, uh, made them feel unsafe. Um, He he then corrected his behaviour apparently and became you know um, much more solicitous and sensitive, and just I guess sucked up the spelling mistakes. Um, But uh, uh, so he was not found guilty of intentionally bullying anyone. It was unintentional. His behaviour. You know, um, had that effect, um, which seems like a pretty low threshold for for finding someone guilty of bullying. But I think the the reason he had to go, as you said in your when you introduced this item, is that he said that if he was found bully if he was found guilty of any bullying at all, including this kind of um, softer, unintentional form of bullying, then he would fall on his sword. So confident, was he, that he'd be exonerated. And I suppose at the time, he wanted to kind of draw a line under all the speculation and just wanted to make it sound as though there was nothing to this. Uh, But that was clearly a kind of political blunder. Uh, And that's why I think Rishi Sunak and co had no choice but to accept his resignation. But I think had he not said that, he could have kind of treated this as, you know, essentially an exoneration and carried on.
0: Yeah, I, I, you could see that as an error because, yeah, they only need to find these two tiny instances of bullying and then he has to go on a technicality. But I wondered if he just, if Richie just wanted him to go and he, he was just saying that he was sticking to his word. You know, I, I'm not sure. Maybe it, it is what you say. But anyway, he's gone. The blob of one. And, yeah, I think that, that idea about, this is what I was going to say, unconscious bullying. This is like, is this going to be in a new woke term, unconscious bullying, you know? And it, it reminds me of that other th- topic we we're discussing where it's about... If offence is received, it, we've, discovered that, we've discussed that quite a lot. There are various laws in place now, aren't they? Where it's all about if, if someone is, is it the law and is it that yeah. Scottish law that's that one, or is it the online protection thing? But or, or is it the work of Native No, bill? I'm it's, so it's,
1: it, well, it it often comes up. Um, but it was uh, uh, um, in, it, where it comes up, I think, most frequently is um, in the definition of non crime hate incidents. So in order to be effectively found guilty of a non-crime hate incident, it is sufficient for someone to perceive your behavior as being motivated by hatred of someone with a particular protected characteristic. Um, It doesn't matter if that isn't your intention. And in the case of NCHIs, it doesn't matter if the perception uh, which you're damned by Is completely unreasonable, or at least hitherto it hasn't mattered. Police have ignored the reasonableness bit. Um, So it's an entirely subjective standard, and if offence is uh, given and only in the eye of the beholder, that's enough for an NTHI to be recorded against your name. Uh, It's also true of harassment um, uh, under the Equality Act 2010 you can be found guilty of harassment or an employer can be found liable for not doing enough to prevent harassment if the harassment is perceived but not intended. There was also a reasonable standard clause um, in the Equality Act, but it's often overlooked, um, uh, including by the Employment Tribunal. Um, so yeah, this is another example of of the kind of creep of subjective definitions of offense and harassment and bullying creeping into public life
0: that just seems absolutely unworkable to me and it just reminded me of something bizarre because we <laughs> we covered this story on headliners about leg lengthening surgery because of this disgusting standard that's emerged uh, in, in, amongst modern women online that men have to be six foot plus even though that's 10 percent of the population you know and so so the man here was seven foot five foot seven he wasn't seven foot even fine he was five foot seven and he's extended his leg, his legs, and he's now a five foot ten. And they do it by ex- extending the bone, and then putting in uh, uh, rods, and then, then the, rod, the bone grows together, and the rods are taken out. But but it says once the rods are inserted, they're lengthened by up to one millimeter a day using an external remote control. And I just thought you've got to be really careful who you give that remote control to because they, <laughs> they can extend your leg. And um, it just it just it makes me think of all this. It's like. Once you say that it's whether you perceive the fence, I can say, Dominic Rob, I felt bullied me when he said hello. Do you remember that old uh, <laughs> Peter Cook sketch? Yeah, he said, hello. I was like, you... I, I may want to say the word because there's a lot of C words in it. But he's like, hello. He's like, it's like, what? I then they get really annoyed because the guy came up to him and said, hello. And he's like, that's the final straw. So he like has to smack his face and <laughs> call in the C word. And it's like, Rob comes up to me and says, hello. And it's like and I perceive offence, you know what I mean? It's it's all over. So how can it be on the the perception of it? Absolutely absurd. So sorry, my mind just went in a lot of directions there, but it is completely ridiculous. Um, Do you want to move on to quickly do this Barry Humphreys one?
1: I didn't have anything particular to say about Barry Humphreys' departure, uh, death, um, but but James Dellingpole brought it up on the um, uh, London calling uh, yesterday. And the reason he brought it up, I, I, I discovered, is because he wanted to uh drop in the fact that's that that Sebastian Humphreys is it, is it Sebastian I think it's Sebastian uh, Os- no Oscar Humphreys um uh Barry Humphreys' son had confided in James that James was Barry Humphreys' favorite spectator columnist <laughs> um, uh, so, <laughs> That's um, hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite irritating um but uh <laughs> yeah I, I suppose i suppose it's um i, I think i know what you're going to say but you're going to say it much better than me and you're going to flesh it out with some really good examples but but the annoying thing about the all the 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 hagiographies um of Barry Humphreys is that a lot of the people are claiming him as this kind of fantastic groundbreaking hilarious innovative, original, um, uh, are the very same people who, you know, a year ago were condemning him for being a transphobe and trying to cancel him. Um, It's as though all that's been forgotten now. It's been sort of, all that's been swept under the rug um, when in fact they should have to, they should be forced to own their own, you know, poor treatment of this guy, particularly when he was ailing in his final years.
0: Well, exactly. The headline in the mail was, Melbourne Comedy Festival is now planning a fitting tribute to Barry Humphreys after it was accused of cancelling the comedic genius. Well, they weren't accused. They did. They took the name of the awards. It was called the Barry Awards, named after him, and they changed the name. And I think it's now just called the Melbourne Comedy Festival Prize or some bollocks. And it was, they actually took the name off. And what's incredible is there's this guy, Sammy Jay, who's some Australian comedian, I think. And he said he won a Barry but he was on the board when they voted to re- rename the Barry. And this is another quiet part out loud moment where he just simply admitted that the reason they did it was Barry Humphreys had said that trans people were, it was sort of a fashion and he was very sort of critical of the radical trans movement. And they said, well, they basically said, look, we need people to come to the festival to perform and, and young people have to come to it. And, and they're sensitive to this stuff. So we changed the name. Threw him under the bus because we care more about the young people coming to our festival. So it was a complete mask off Mo. I mean, perhaps some some slight respect for just being honest about how disgusting a person you are. But but that's what they that's what he went with. I mean, imagine that you've received a Barry and you and you vote to change the name. I mean, he invent he started as far as I know the Melbourne Comedy Festival with Peter Cook. I mean, pretty disgusting stuff. And Hannah Gadsby, of course, was one of the people who who put the pressure to get rid of him. She said back in 2018, Barry Humphrey's loves those who hold power, hates vulnerable minorities, and has completely lost the ability to read the room. That's not a comedian. That's an irrelevant, inhumane dick biscuit of the highest order. Lefties always have these weird sort of uh, rubbish insults like Bell End is a popular one or sort of weird childlike insults. So pretty disgusting. And he replied by saying that Hannah Gadsby was about as funny as an orphanage on fire, which is correct. So yeah, pretty disgusting treatment of Barry Humphreys. Uh, and we've I think we've pretty much covered it. Anything to add?
1: Why do um, left-wing comedians when they're, you know, in attack mode, um, acting as kind of uh, tribunes of outrage mobs, use funny phrases like dick biscuit? I remember I was described when I was cancelled by a comedian as a cockwomble. That's another big which one. I hadn't that's, come across before.
0: Yeah. That's a big one they use. <laughs> well, Alex, on, on my current Thing podcast, I was speaking to Alex McCarron of Reclaim Party and is a filmmaker. And he said he's invented the phrase inverse gammon. Which is your, your James O'Brien, who I said was a leader of them, your Matthew Sweets, your um, Otto Englishes and all these lot it's the inverse gammon. And that's quite a good phrase. But they the inverse gammon people all use these things, cockwomble, they like bell end a lot, and they like sort of sometimes they just drop a lot of F bombs and they just go and they think that's clever as well. But they yeah, they they think certain sort of yeah, it's cutesy swearing is kind of is kind of it's kind of clever, but it's just kind of irritating.
1: I it, maybe it's an attempt to kind of Conceal the kind of spite and vitriol and malice behind the cancellation attempts. It's supposed to make cancel culture look cute and kind of um, you know uh, cute and fluffy. You know, I, I, even though I'm I'm taking up the moral cudgels against this just disp- deplorable, um, I'm going to do it in a funny way because um, mm. I'm also funny. I'm, I'm also just, funny, uh,
0: and also it's just a yeah. general lack of taste. You'll notice in general a sort of midwit inverse gammons have a general lack of taste about everything that's why they have their lame opinions and so they obviously their swear words are as lame as their opinions and probably their music taste is pretty lame as well we can imagine it goes all the way through i'm just condemning them completely and without any evidence but i think i'm right um and um there was another example wasn't there this week of a comedian cancelling someone kind of or what would you call it i don't know what you'd call it this was kate baron who i know i've met her. she seems fine but she pulled out of Hate and Lie, which is Leo's night that he does with Darius Davis, Leo Curse, And um, and it, not because of Leo, shockingly, but because of Dapper Laughs, who has done headliners quite a few times, nice guy. He was on the bill. Daniel O'Reilly is his real name. And he was cancelled in comedy a few years ago. And it, he, it was pathetic, actually. Uh, these comedians, it was one of the earlier instances of comedic cancel culture. They they put a petition out against him about why you should be cancelled and condemned because he the sort of allegedly allegedly misogynist he was a kind of character this dapper laughs character who's like a sort of geezer character and did misogynist jokes or whatever on vine which was a thing then and so he had to be cancelled and condemned and he famously came on Newsnight in a in a roll neck jumper which I've joked with him about and sort of did a sort of worthy apology and regretted treating it like that and now has sort of moved on from it and you know he's a good guy but Kate Barron wrote having only moved here four years ago and not began my comedy in the UK or grown up here. I'm unaware of many comedians and their histories until I meet them slash get put on a lineup with them. I'd never heard of Dapper Last before. And as great as it is that he can now see women as real people because he has daughters of his own, it's still a no from me due to his previous stand up, inverted comments. I'm all for freedom of speech and people evolving, but I have a personal line that I won't cross. So I have canceled tomorrow night's hate and live, no obsessive apostrophe on tomorrow night's hate and live gig at Unleashed Comedy as I don't feel comfortable being on this bill. And I just said it's a great moment for Leo because he's he, someone's pulling out of his show not because of him but the alleged misogyny from one of the other comedians. So Leo's the male feminist, and it's Dan that's in trouble. Any uh, comment on that? Tell me. Obviously, I got comments because I've been eleven years in that industry. But
1: yeah, well, there's, this this is this is I think of you know the chief of police in Casablanca saying he was shocked shocked to discover there was gambling going on at Rick's place. I mean, she's agreed <laughs> to appear. Um, at a gig at co- the backyard comedy club under the banner of Comedy Unleashed, and the gig is literally called Hate and Live. Um, so, and then she's suddenly shocked to discover there are some quite controversial comedians alongside her in the lineup. You know, I mean, did she did she not clock that Leo Curse was one of those comedians? I mean, it's like uh, it is it is extraordinary that she should have. So belatedly, you know, discovered that um, uh, this isn't your normal kind of mainstream normie comedy club that she's agreed to appear in. Um, You know, if she has been here for four years, you'd think she would have twigged by now that um, these are politically incorrect comedians and there are going to be people on the lineup who've said things that woke mobs would have come for in the past that's it's kind of almost it's raison d'etre
0: yeah and i believe hating live leo will kill me if i get it wrong but it's an improvisational show where i believe they pick something out of a hat and you've got to say what a rant about why you hate it like disabled people or something and you have to so it's a kind of you know controversial like improvised format and um so that already in itself yeah like you said, is, is you know yeah it's a bit of a clue that it's not a totally pc show but i think it's a bizarre reason that But this is the comedy industry, and people, I think, are grasping it now. I think people a few years ago struggled to understand it. I knew because I was in it. I knew how toxic and Maoist it was and how pathetic and snake-like and disgusting, but it's one reason I don't do it anymore because I'm so disgusted by the industry. But, yeah, when someone like Dapper laughs, it's just he's just on the blacklist. So if you just do anything with him, that's it. Guilt by association, you're done. So she can't even, years later, appear on a bill with Dan, who's a nice guy, like she says, a family guy. He runs businesses. Upbeat guy, positive, ple- pleasure to work with. When I've worked with him, but if you, if you even s- s- on the bill with this guy, you have to condemn it. I mean, isn't that so sick and weird?
1: You no, know, it's um, it's typical. I mean, you know, she says that she's glad that he's you know um, supposedly done penance for the things he was cancelled for, but uh, you know, um, you I don't think you can really say I accept he's 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 penitent. You know, he's sorry, uh, but I'm still not going to forgive him. I mean, well, that's not very charitable of you, is it?
0: No, that's bizarre. I mean, yeah, he's moved on. He's changed. He's he's learned. But he's still cancelled forever. Well, famously, one of the things about <laughs> the woke is that they don't have a mechanism for forgiveness, yeah. unlike Christianity. Yeah. And that's another good example of it. But Kate will just be pressured. She'll be receiving pressure from the yeah. industry, from agents. Same thing. I was speaking to Tanya Edwards on my podcast, the current thing last mention. and she—that's uh, coming out soon—and she was she got cancelled by her agent for writing a blog about masks. So that's the comedy world. It's a disgusting, craven, pathetic world of uh, co- collectivist Maoist cowards. So there you go. That's my sta- typical on the fence stance. <laughs> from Nick said, Perhaps Kate Craven and Cowardly is a tautology. That's the one thing I criticise myself for in that statement, just as Kate Barron missed off the possessive of prosperity, which is unforgivable.
1: So this is an ad from uh, one of our most loyal sponsors, Thor. And uh, this is Thor speaking, not me. Fellow sceptics, some of you keep asking me what exactly Thor does. Well, by way of explanation, let me share a weird voice note I picked up last Friday from someone I'd run a couple of coaching sessions for. To be clear, he's not a paying client, or at least not yet. This cheerful chap runs a business down in England, and the part of his voice note I can share went like this. It's like just knowing Thor has led to more money coming into my business account, if that's possible, lol. So the majority... So the moral of the story might be stop hearing his advert and wondering what Thor actually does and instead actually get in touch and start getting to know him. What do you think? You can read 80 actual client recommendations on LinkedIn, actual clients being people who made the decision to pay me some money, not simply benefit from the aforementioned just knowing Thor led to more money in my account effect, which I'm also fine with, by the way the more the merrier. So please connect with me today at linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. That's linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. Cheers, Thor.
0: Thanks for that, Thor. And I said I mentioned my podcast for the last time, but I have to mention it one more time because I've got a forthcoming episode next week with Thor because you know everyone wants to know more about Thor. They always listen to his adverts. So I've done a full hour interview with him coming up on the current thing available on all audio platforms may also be on youtube most of the episodes are but we did talk a lot about the safe and effective treatment so it may not be and we talk about politics team toby team james but we also talk about mindset and making money and all kinds of things very interesting episode so check that out when it comes out all right now let's go over to will with our top stories of the week So, I'm here with Dr. Will Jones, editor of The Daily Skeptic, as ever, and we have some interesting stories this week. Firstly, WHO Pandemic Treaty gives Tedros power to impose legally binding countermeasures on the world, but government doesn't care. quite a long title. Now I thought Tedros was that guy that uh, is the ruler of the Daleks will. Am I
2: wrong? Uh, you are wrong, I'm afraid. He is a uh, person hoping to be the ruler of the world, it seems, if this pandemic treaty and other new agreement about pandemics, international agreement about pandemics comes to pass. He's the he's the person in charge of the World Health Organization, uh, Tedros, and there's a new, as, as our listeners will be well aware, I'm sure, there is a new agreement, pandemic treaty, and other paraphernalia. The Um, There's also, Nick, slightly complicated, but we have to pay attention to these things because they're very important. There are also amendments to the international health regulations. And in fact, in many ways, it's those amendments that are more of a threat than the new treaty. That may sound surprising, but they are easier to get into agreement to get them into place. Uh, They only need a majority, not two thirds majority. And uh, they're not a new treaty, uh, but the ones that are proposed involve uh, allowing the person in charge of the World Health Organization, uh, Tedros, at the moment, to uh, declare to unilaterally, unilaterally declare a health, a public health emergency for him to do that, even when there's just the possibility of harm and not the proven fact of harm. And most significantly of all, uh, it makes the guidance and the Uh, instructions that the World Health Organization makes and Tedros makes uh, to be legally binding on member states. No longer guidance, but law, but international law. Now, some people are coming back and saying, ah, well, it's just international law. There's no enforcement mechanism. There's no court. They can't really make you do it. Uh, But of course, that's that's very naive. While it's true that a lot of countries do uh, flout international law and take it with a pinch of salt, the fact is that it is, according to the letter of these uh, these proposed regulations and amendments, uh, it is international law, it is legally binding, and could very easily become something that is actively enforced. And even if it is not actively enforced by courts, uh, which is unusual in international law. That's true, uh, but even if it's not, it still has the the moral force of law, and uh, will be seen that way by governments uh, and possibly by domestic courts as well. A very very weighty matters for it to be made uh, legally binding. Um, and the point is that these are um, these are measures that could include, just at the discretion of the World Health Organization, uh, could include. Uh, lockdowns, quarantines, uh, vaccine mandates, mask mandates, all the whole paraphernalia of countermeasures that we've uh, got um, horribly used to in the last few years, uh, could be imposed legally binding by the World Health Organization under the proposed uh, international changes. And this uh, has come up again because while well, it's, it's, it's on running, these uh, these agreements and changes are uh, are, are in the works. Uh, there's meetings from of the World, World Health Organization, the World Health Assembly happening uh, this year and next year. Uh, they're they're on they're on the track. They're coming down the track, um, and uh, the the most recent intervention is that Dr. Carl Hennigan and Dr. Tom Jefferson of the Oxford uh, Center for Evidence Based Medicine uh, made an intervention, uh, which we reprinted. On the Daily Skeptic, and in fact, that wasn't the only intervention uh, f- uh, f- that we reprinted this, uh, that we published this this week. Also, Professor Robert Dingwall, who re- who listeners may uh, recall as a government advisor on nerve Tag and Sage during the pandemic, he also wrote a powerful intervention on this topic, warning of these of precisely these dangers that we've just uh, mentioned. So uh, people are waking up, but it seems it's still only those in the skeptical. Uh, campers, you might call it, who are, um, who are, who are, who are alive to these problems. Um, and really, um, as Hennigan and Jefferson say, we really need people outside of, that that are, of us usual suspects to be waking up to these to these issues and reading the treaty and the agreements for themselves and realizing that this is not just fear mongering that this is these are genuine issues that are being raised.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, sounds like I need to look into that one more. Sounds pretty disturbing. Should we do this one? COVID vaccines must be suspended, and a full inquiry launched into how
2: they're approved. Say experts. Which experts are these? Well, uh, so these experts is the the Perseus Group. It's a a new group that has uh, established uh, that has been established in order to look at the important question of how drugs, medicines, vaccines. Of course, being the particular, the COVID vaccines being the particular topic. Um, that has occasioned their concern. Uh, how those are approved and regulated, uh, and recommended in in the United Kingdom, the 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 answer is that they are that is done by the uh, the MHRA. That's the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Authority. Uh, it is uh, the the chief executive of that organisation, June Rain, uh, in speeches in the last. year. Uh, year or two has been uh, making much of the fact that the, the role of her organisation is changing she tells us it's changing from watchdog which is exactly what we want it to be of course to wait for this nick enabler and this is the new the new paradigm that she's presenting of course the regulatory authority for drugs we don't want to be an enabler that's th- enabling is what is what medics and all the people who use and promote these uh, these medicines we uh, will be doing. What we want from a regulatory authority is to be a watchdog. That's exactly what we want it to do. We want it to be making sure, to fulfilling its basic function of make of protecting the public from the harm of unsafe medicines. That's what we want to be doing. We don't want it to be an enabler for the pharmaceutical industry, which while Providing lots of helpful medicines, of course, uh, is also um, motivated uh, by profit, of course. It's private companies and will also uh, put onto, uh, lots of examples of the pharmaceutical industry putting medicines onto market uh, that are not really safe uh, or not safe at all. And uh, and really, they know them not to be safe, uh, but they do all kinds of tricks uh, to to conceal that fact the way that they the way they test them and the job of the mhra the regulatory um, or the drugs regulator is of course to stop them from doing that and to make sure that they are behaving themselves and only bringing safe drugs to market um, but all kinds of failings in this organisation this isn't the first group to have identified these problems. The Parliamentary Committee from the Health Care has raised issues uh, as recently as 2020. The Parliamentary Health Committee was raising serious concerns about problems with previous. Uh, Medical interventions that had, like many others before them, had serious safety issues and efficacy issues uh, come up after they were rolled out. And uh, the report, uh, the Cumberledge report, it's called, identified uh, all kinds of problems with why that had happened uh, with these previous interventions. Uh, in, including and especially with the regulator and the way the regulator, the MHRA, uh, works and handles these things, uh, the committee, even as recently as 2020, said uh, these things are these things are being improved just too slowly. It's not happening fast enough. And this is the and so this new group, the Perseus Group, has uh, done what the Health Select Committee of Parliament has. So far, failed to do and raised these concerns specifically about the MHRA's approach to the COVID vaccines and saying that the regulation, the regulatory body, has has failed in its duty. Um, there's lots of details about how it's failed. Um, it goes through the new rep- the report that they've released uh, goes goes through these in some detail. And I would encourage listeners uh, to read this report. It's a very uh, important uh, intervention. Uh, raises lots of key questions uh, because. At the end of the day, the, the, it's the MHRA that the public relies on to to make sure that the medicines and medical interventions uh, that we that we assume are are for, our, are for our benefit when they're given to us by doctors that they actually are that they actually are safe and effective.
0: Yeah, one concern was that it assesses the safety of medicine relative to its benefit, or relative to its benefit, rather than in absolute terms, which the report likens to. The nuclear regulator saying our nuclear power station is safe because it has fewer contaminated water leaks than other stations. So that that
2: was a good point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the uh, the problem that the this this the MHRA doesn't doesn't it, do, it isn't making sure that medicines are safe from an absolute point of view. It's just looking at them relative to other medicines or relative to the supposed benefit um, that they that they bring. Uh, not looking at and it doesn't have it doesn't have a definition of what a safe what, what is safe. It doesn't have a, a standard definition. That's part of the same problem. Uh, yeah, all, all, all kinds of problems, uh, and these aren't these and they these aren't the first time they've been raised. Uh, but it seems that uh, they're just they're just not going they're just not being addressed. And uh, and what's worse, of course, with the politicization of the vaccine of the COVID vaccines, it feels like they're even less likely to be addressed now. But let's hope that that proves wrong.
0: All right. Well, let's move on to this one. Shielding policy for COVID was just made up, and there's no evidence it helped, say researchers. Now, does this undermine any of our side, like the Great Barrington Declaration, or is it more about Matt Hancock and his his made up policies we learned from in the lockdown files?
2: Yeah, so this is uh, a major new study from Swansea University, 117,000 people who are shielding uh, just in Wales. So So that gives you an idea of the scale of how many people were subject to this policy. This is the policy, of course, of encouraging those at those who are vulnerable or at high risk of COVID, uh, encouraging them to, uh, to to really shut themselves off from other people and keep themselves a real distance, a so social distancing on steroids, if you like, for those who are especially vulnerable. And this is a, a major study, a really a really mainstream study. This, uh, um, this is from Swansea University, and, and they basically found that this this policy of shielding, uh, they say that it was just sort of made up. That's what the lead researcher told the BBC. So yet again, um, emphasising how little evidence base there was for these extraordinary policies that were inflicted on us all. And then they've found that, in fact, that the uh, the infection rates, uh, the death rates, the serious illness rates were all higher uh, in those who were shielding than those who weren't. Uh, now, of course, these people are more vulnerable. Uh, they're also engaging with healthcare more often, so they're probably testing more. So those those things were taken into account and uh, possibly skewed the results. But even so, if you're going to inflict this kind of extreme measure on people on, on vulnerable people, uh, you would expect, um, at the very least, to see a reduction and to see lower levels of infections and, and disease. So even taking into account uh, those potential uh, underlying uh, differences and biases uh, is still even so um, that is that is that is an obvious failure of a policy, shielding, shutting people off from the world, effectively extreme lockdown for vulnerable people, uh, like uh, the evidence for other lockdowns, uh, just it turns out doesn't protect people from uh, from the virus. We've seen this in lots of other studies. Uh, it's been shown time and time again. You would think logically. That keeping people separate from other people uh, would protect them from uh, an infectious virus, and infectious disease. Uh, but time and time again, the real-world data and studies show us that counterintuitive, if you, counterintuitively, if you like, that isn't actually the case. In this case, the researchers suggested that that's because these people are engaging with hospitals and medical care a lot. So even though they're shielding in social in their social life, they're they're not. Um, they're, they're not disengaging from hospital care, and of course, it's well known that hospitals and medical facilities are major places of spread of the virus. Uh, nosocomial infection, it's called. Uh, studies have found that they were that was responsible for huge percentages, uh, majorities of serious, uh, majorities of serious uh, disease uh, incidents. So, uh, so that's why they suggest. might be. Uh, There are other reasons why these kinds of extreme measures uh, that logically you think would work uh, don't. Uh, But the important thing is that whatever the reason they don't work, the data keeps on showing over and over again, that that is uh, the case that they don't work. And this needs to be taken into account. But of course, it's very hard to get people to accept that this is the case that these that these extreme measures that logically seem like they should protect people. um, In fact, Um, in fact, don't have the desired effect, which means we talk a lot about needing to do a cost benefit um, assessment to make sure that things are doing more good than harm. But of course, if these things aren't even doing any good at all, if they're not working, uh, if they're not even reducing infection rates, then then there's not even an equation to do. It's it's all harm. Um, And I think people are really struggling uh, to accept that point. Uh, Seems counterintuitive, but, uh, but that's what the data keeps showing. And, oh, and just to come back to your question, Nick, about the uh, the Great Barrington Declaration, um, it has been pointed out before that the idea of focused protection of the elderly is also um, an idea which is, is is quite a theoretical one, uh, that, the, that the evidence base for that idea is also not as great as might be hoped. And so while we might aim to protect people from vulnerable people especially cover them in a, in a in a protective blanket if you like try and stop them from being infected and getting reached by the virus and the disease in fact it's um that is actually a, a lot easier said than done um, so there is possibly a challenge for um as you suggested for the idea of the focus protection of the great barrington declaration is it is it really possible uh, to to do that um It needs to be looked into more, but yes, these results uh, do also suggest challenges with that as well.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, it's in terms of people realizing it was all for nothing. I mean, that's going to be very difficult to get people to do because of their egos and because of the sunk cost fallacy, people are heavily invested in these policies, but it's the hubris of man to think you can stop a virus, I would say. But hey, some of us knew this stuff was all nonsense. You, You might say we couldn't have known, but yeah, we did. Um, Unless you've got anything to add on that, should we move on to climate madness and do this story about electric vehicle demand slumps sixty five percent in a year?
2: Yeah, so uh, this is um, this is the story that that demand for electric vehicles as uh, electric cars as measured by the level of interest and inquiries online, uh, in particular, and with Auto Trader and online vehicle marketplace. Um, has uh, dropped hugely in the last year, a result, of course, of the inflation, all the financial problems, the economic problems have been experienced. This is all, it's all in comparison to January 2022, which of course, was before the uh, the war started in uh, in Ukraine. So we're going back and before inflation became a big problem. So um, and before a lot of the lockdown, uh, lockdown effects um, had kicked in, economic effects, the lockdown had, had really kicked in. So big drop, 65% drop in inquiries, uh, which uh, has been interpreted as a demand for an interest in electric, uh, electric vehicles. Uh, so, so part of that is just to do that, to do with their sheer cost. Uh, electric cars are as we know much more expensive an average of 37 percent more expensive than petrol diesel and diesel cars according to auto traders' new uh, report so significantly more expensive and people are, and of course they in addition to that they are much less convenient in a lot of ways you can't just fill it up in a few minutes at a petrol station uh, you have to plan much more carefully how you're going to fill it up and your and your journeys when you're doing longer journeys and they lose a lot of their range in in colder weather as well so uh, all these kinds of issues and with that comes an extra price tag uh, so not as popular as um, as would be hoped the as the or as I, sh- I should say as the as the greenies um, and the climate alarmists would be hoping because they're Hoping that these are going to replace uh, petrol and diesel vehicles very very quickly. There's that there's the there's the law of, that's coming in of the the ban on 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 petrol and diesel cars by twenty uh, new ones by 2030, which is a as I'm sure you're aware, Nick, a, a mere six and a half years away. So it's really we would need to see a, a, a picking up of interest in electric vehicles if that's going to happen. Uh, but that is the opposite of what we're seeing. That they're just not as popular as they um, as the government uh, wants would want them to be and and it's a it's and it's it's yet another example uh, of the, of the government uh, with this ideological agenda trying to trying to force products onto the public uh, that the public are just not just not as interested in as they would need to be
0: yeah and Elon Musk has, well, he says he will slash the price of Teslas for the sixth time this year so let's hope Twitter works out for him for so many reasons
2: yeah, that's that's had a big effect on Tesla's share price. Uh, obviously, that means uh, less profit. Although, I guess if if that increases how many are sold, then uh, then it could go the other way. But but uh, it makes you wonder what, what the markup is if they can just keep on selling them for selling them for less. You know, maybe yeah. that's a good thing.
0: Good point. Um, let's end on this one: climate skepticism on the rise throughout the world. This is from Chris.
2: Yeah, good news uh, on the sceptical uh, skeptical front. A new, a new poll from uh, the University of Chicago uh, found that the belief that humans cause all or most climate change has slumped um, in America uh, to, to just 49%. So that's less than half of those polled uh, from 60% just five years ago so nearly two-thirds five years ago to less than half today so that really shows that the sceptical arguments and evidence is really making an impact um, in the last few years and so so that's that's great news and we can see that the change is mostly breaking down by politics is mostly uh, among democrats democrat voters uh, that's uh, people who vote for the more left-wing party um, in america And and they have gone from in 2018, 72 percent, or nearly three quarters, of Democrats uh, believed uh, that climate change is mostly or all caused by human to some um, mostly man-made to uh, to just 60 percent of Democrats in 2023. So in five years, that's a that's a huge reduction from 72 percent to 60 percent, and that that explains. Uh, most of the change um, and independent uh voters a relatively small number in america who uh, have, have a similar change from 61 uh to 42 percent so uh, interestingly uh republicans are have pretty much stayed uh, put th- around about a third of republican voters 33 percent uh vote th- uh think that are uh, climate skeptics sorry wrong way around uh think uh, are, are um are Around a third of Republican voters think that climate change is mostly caused by humans, and that's the same as five years ago. So, so it's it's a lot of people who are on the, if you like, the political, uh, the political left or Democrat uh, voters who uh, are who are coming around to skeptical arguments. And it, and I think I have to say, Nick, I think that it, that to a large extent, it it must be affected by the by the fact that the temperatures have been have not been going up. In the last uh, ten years, uh, in uh, or so, uh, not quite ten years, and um, and in fact they've even ever so slightly declined in the last in the last few years as well. This is global global temperatures, and and you have to and you have to think that 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 lack of global temperature trend, that lack of confirming the scary alarmist models, uh, has to be having some effect because of course. Carbon dioxide has just been going. Uh, the amount that we've been emitting has just been going up and up. It, it never really, it never really comes down. It uh, barely slows down, and yet temperatures uh, are not doing. Are not following the famous uh, Al Gore hockey stick. They're not uh, going up into the stratosphere. They are in fact flatlined uh, and even slightly declining. We've got a big El Nino happening this year, and that usually um, comes. Last time that happened, 2016, that caused a sharp rise in temperatures. And um, and uh, you've got to expect that that's going to a similar might happen this year. So we may uh, we may see a, a rise in temperature from the El Nino uh, oscillation, and uh, and so it'll be interesting to see uh, whether that affects the uh, these these trends in any future survey.
0: Yeah, Also very interesting that climate skepticism was similar in all age categories. Maybe people just don't want to eat the bugs and be happy.
2: <laughs> yeah yeah as I say, it's good it's, it's good news that uh, that people are as, as, as more people are waking up and, uh, and seeing that the predictions are not necessarily what they're taken to be and, and you have to and you also have to wonder whether the whether the the modeling problems from the from the pandemic and all of the and all of the overreach from the elites will, will also have increased skepticism as well of, of from the, the propaganda and the mo- and the modeling uh, the, and the, the science. Uh, coming out of um, from the authorities, that must be having an effect as well, I would have thought.
0: Yeah, you would imagine so. All right, good stories this week. Thanks a lot, Will, and uh, I'm sure we'll catch up with you again next week. Great, thanks, Nick. Toby, do you want to go into Birdwatch or do you want to do this Jacob Rees-Mogg story briefly?
1: Let's do the Jacob Rees-Mogg story briefly. So this is the story about... Um, him clashing on his GB show with Marina Perkis, who is um, uh, a left-wing activist um, who I think appears regularly on uh, Jeremy Vine's show on Channel 5. Is that right? Is that her main platform? Uh, And she's got quite a big Twitter following, I noticed, bigger than mine, quite irritating. (laughs) Um, But uh, there were various clips uh, uh, of her clash with Jacob and lots of people on the left have been kind of um uh applauding her for owning jacob um in this in this clip and having watched the clip i don't think she did own jacob um uh, he was his usual impeccably polite courteous uh self and she was increasingly kind of shrill and petty and kept accusing him of things like being a liar and lying about brexit without ever being able to substantiate anything um and uh i thought actually he came across much better than her, but, you know, I'm obviously seeing it through a partisan lens. Um, one thing that I thought was odd about her entire performance, uh, which was very kind of petulant and kind of six form, um, was um, her claim at one point that she was never going to come on the show again. You know, she made a point of saying, this is the last time I'll ever come on your show and share a space with a hated right wing Brexiteer like you. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. Um, if you disapprove of him and for that reason and you don't want to share a space with him, why do you come on once? What's the kind of rationale for coming on once but never again? Is it to sort of give him a piece of your mind, tell him what you think and then never never let him darken you. I mean, it's so odd. I mean, you know, you get this kind of, it's like a sort of, it's like, I'm not going to no-platform you on this occasion because I want to be on your show, but henceforth, you know, I-, I will not be on your show and I'll condemn anyone who comes on your show for kind of, you know, being alt-right adjacent. It was a kind of odd Odd kind of form of in- Maoist intolerance. It was like oh, just this once, I'm going to put aside my reservations um, and, and come on your show to give you a piece of my mind, but never again. It was sort of a weird bit of kind of self-righteous kind of um, posturing, which I didn't quite get.
0: Yeah, that, that was bizarre. It's like I'm just throwing a grenade in. That's the only reason I'm here. Then I'm going to leave. That's what it was. I, I read it the same way. It was like I totally condemn this channel, and I'm not. I'm yeah, I'm not here properly. I'm just here to condemn you quickly and then get out and. Yeah, that, that, I read that in the same way because it was really strange. Um, it, it wasn't at the end of the interview when, like, this has gone so badly, I won't come back again. It was, like, quite early on, like, I plan to never come back again. Yeah, odd behavior. I mean, I couldn't resist. I mean, I did one of my late-night tweets at <laughs> 1.16 a.m. I wake up and it's got thousands of likes but also thousands of comments. I just said, very thorough, of GB, to invite the rude, arrogant, low-IQ community because, you know, they, they're very careful to represent everyone. And... Um, I work, it's got 2,000 likes, but it's also got like a 1,000 replies. And I saw that people have replied to Matthew Stadler. And so I may be getting sort of mobbed for this. And, uh, but I, I'm doing that. I just now think, what would Tucker Carlson do? Would he look through his tweets, seeing who's attacked him? I just don't even look. I don't care what Matthew Stadler said or Matthew Bitter or any of these weirdos. I, I don't care anymore. So um, to be fair, Toby, in one instance of that, I was protecting you because a tweet had gone out uh, from the Daily Skeptic that people thought was from you. And I was saying, Toby, this is this is getting you in trouble and it's not what your opinion. So I think that was, I was trying to protect you. And then in other cases, I was That's just true. telling you.
1: <laughs> but, um, in the 99 other cases, it's just been gleeful <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: celebration no, of these horrid insults.
0: To be honest, even when I got cancelled, my mini cancellation wasn't a proper cancellation, pile on by the comedy industry. Um, I didn't actually check them then either, to be honest. Even though I was being attacked by big comedians, I didn't even look then, but I try and avoid it. I don't look now, but... It seems like I'm in trouble for this one, but I'm also getting a lot of support for it. Uh, but then someone called Gully Foil has gone through and ranked their their factual accuracy, Mog versus Marina, and he's come back and said that Mog was five out of five for his claims, and Marina an unfortunate one point five out of five. So she was just shouting platitudes at him, basically repeatedly calling him a liar. She did a very interesting thing that the her side do. She said she's just a decent person. She called herself a decent person. Once you just believe you're inherently a good person mm-hmm. on the right side of history you can just behave how you want can't you
1: Yeah it was it would, her it was it, her, she didn't seem to have under, grasped the kind of basic concept of appearing on a television program to discuss news and current affairs with someone who has a different point of view to you um the point is to have a discussion to make an argument to set out your reasons for believing in one thing and not another. But she was just kind of, it was just one assertion after another. And as you say, it was an appeal to her supposed moral superiority and the moral superiority of people on her anti-Tory side without actually ever giving a reason. It was just one assertion after another. It was as though this is how she normally performs because she's she's kind of talking to her own echo chamber on Twitter and is never asked to give a reason, It's never challenged about anything she says. So this is just her mo and she didn't adjust it even though she was on the hated gb news even if it was only for one time uh so yeah it was like uh, it was it was sort of odd it was like it was like a discussion between jacob and an angry lefty who'd had a couple of gin and tonics um or 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 other micro brewery um uh authentic ales um in a bar in you know um uh, somewhere in Dalston, um, who 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 just who was just kind of continuing their rant against the Tories um and not realizing that she was actually supposed to set out her reasons for thinking Brexit was a failure and you know the Tories were misgoverning. But no, it was just it was just kind of self righteous assertion.
0: All she missed was the phrase cockwomble. But yeah, she had some <laughs> points but, and facts, but they were just wrong mostly. And People do have this hysteria around re-smog. I'm sure you've noticed, and I've noticed it even in the people I know in the extended blob in North London. Several of them, well, several of them think the government is far right or has far right or fascist policies, which is so completely insane when talking about this current Tory government. Probably any Tory government, particularly this one, is so just deranged. I just don't know where to begin with it. And these people work in in, in think tanks, in the Bank of England, in you know various kind of extended blob functions or one of thems at the BBC I don't I'm, I don't know what I should say but they they all are in the blob or extended deep state cultural blob or something you know but they all have these mad views and one thing one of them said to me is that Jacob Rees-Mogg is going to end up or should end up in jail and I was I was like why <laughs> what it seemed to come down to was just his views and then later it came down to speculations about covid contracts but that was sort of later initially it was just the pre code. It was just because of his views. I think. I and you just. These people have just completely lost it. They've just gone so far. Like, yeah, they can't a, engage reasonably.
1: I mean, it, yeah. And it it's, it always seems kind of like particularly inappropriate and unreasonable when they direct their kind of anti Tory fanaticism towards Jacob Rees Mogg. Um, you know, it's like um, you can understand them saying that you or I are literally Hitler but you know <laughs> bertie wooster in his 3 piece suit um it's just it just it just doesn't land you know it's just like it's she was talking to someone completely different um yeah. you know maybe lee anderson um but jacob i know um, he's so polite yeah, it's just so, so
0: distasteful <laughs> I know he's like, well, no, what you're yeah. saying, you, you, you're you're not you're not you, you you disagree with me, which is fine, but you're accused me of being a liar, which is a different thing. And he's just politely explaining why he's not a liar. I mean, you know, by rights, he could have probably just punched you. It. It's like you just repeatedly get called a liar. Probably well, not punched but it was a woman, but you know what I mean. You, if you're calling well, someone it, a liar repeatedly, it, it, you've broken the rules of, of debate.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and also he was he was sort of he was asking her why she. Why she dismissed free speech as a distraction from, you know, the real issue, which is falling living standards or whatever it is she thinks the real issue is. Um, uh, and he was saying, yes, but you need free speech even if you think that free speech isn't as important an issue, which people should be as concerned about as falling living standards, because without free speech, you can't come on this show to draw attention to falling living standards and blame them on the government that I'm no longer a part of. She didn't get that point at all. She just kept repeating that free speech was a culture war trope. It was a distraction. We shouldn't have any interest in defending it at all. It was like, well... You wouldn't even be able to say that without free speech. You just couldn't grasp that.
0: Her whole job depends on free speech. She's basically a political commentator. I mean, it was completely absurd. But when it comes to that, I really think people like that have just don't really know why. They know they have to say they're not pro free speech to signal to their set, but they don't even really know why anymore. It's just become something. Oh, we're not. I'm not pro free speech. You know what I mean? That's become a weird kind of virtue signal for for their, for their cultural set. It's absolutely bizarre. And the other thing I was mm-hmm. going to say. She, uh, yeah, oh, I can't remember now. I keep forgetting points there. Maybe I'm maybe I'm turning into Diane Abbott. I think I've got um. I think, I'm, I think I'm trying to do too many topics, or I'm turning into Diane Abbott. And you'll, I better check if I'm wearing two left shoes of a completely different kinds. But yeah, it was a complete. It was a complete loss. She, she lost to Mog. She had to uh, virtue signal about not being pro free speech. Absolutely insane. And yeah, and uh, uh, they're taking it as a win anyway. The left are taking it as a win, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know, it's not about debate, is it? It's just about whatever it's just we're well past debate obviously
1: and I guess maybe, maybe this is um maybe I'm going to get into trouble for this but often people like Marina Perkis um rail against various forms of privilege white privilege she talked about Jacob being a toff who'd been to Eton and Oxford and just swanned into the House of Commons after having made millions um in 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 the city um uh, uh, but isn't there such a thing as pretty privilege? You know, um, shouldn't facism be a concern (laughs) of of people on the left who are concerned about, you know, uh, privilege and the way it operates and it leading to various forms of injustice? And, you know, without wanting to suggest that the only reason Marina Perkis is um, a prominent left-wing firebrand um, the female Owen Jones, without willing to suggest it's entirely because she's a very attractive woman. she surely has benefited even a teensy little bit from pretty piv- privilege, no?
0: That's funny because two things on that. Well, one, I've remembered that well I'll answer that first. Of course, that is a thing, and that's a massive thing people don't want to talk about. it's it's always it's always been a thing. You get paid more. And I'm going to go back to my leg lengthening surgery article, which because it's 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 all relevant, this leg lengthening. Did you know that tall people, I'm sure you know this, tall people get paid more? So, according to a study from the Journal of Applied Psychology, each inch above the average height could be worth $789 more per year. With the findings suggesting a six foot tall person earns on average almost $166,000 more during a 30 year career than someone who's five foot five, even when controlling for gender, age, and weight. So, luckily, I'm five, nine and a half, but you know isn't it you've got tall privilege where you actually get paid more and it's well known that good-looking people also get paid more so yeah this is the thing with if wokeness is really going to go there and go through all its identity categories they're going to be in trouble any good-looking person it's going to be difficult i mean i'll I'll be in trouble for being too good-looking but i'm already in trouble for having all the wrong views but you're right toby no one even talks about that what about that privilege
1: yeah no i I, as 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 a as a as a bold man of Below average height. I'm, I'm very sensitive to um, the privileges that tall, hirsute, good looking folk like you enjoy. Um, but uh, never, 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 never think that, that, that they're responsible for your soaring career.
0: Yeah, well, I've got the even taller people than me who are six feet plus, and they just get treated completely differently. A lot of people won't even, some people, uh, even at GB, won't even like say hello to me. I, I always think it's probably because I can't help their career and I'm not tall. This is, this is my theory. Um, but the other thing she did. She immediately came in with the gaslighting claim that the right was stoking divisive culture wars. Uh, you know, not, not in that phrase. But that's the phrase they often use. Very similar to that. And I just, I can't stand that kind of gaslighting. And then Mog, the one thing where Mog was perhaps not as strong is he came back with, you know, things like roll Dahl, centering roll Dahl. Aren't these, aren't these important? Whereas he could have gone much harder and said, you know, mutilating children at 16 and so on, you know. The culture war, so called, they try and diminish it. I would have used much more stark examples to show why it's a, such an important thing because mm. they're trying to, they're literally mutilating children in the name of it through puberty blockers or through mm. surgery. So she would have not been able to make the claim then. Of course, that would have taken it into another direction, but she couldn't have made the claim that it was being stoked by the right, which is one of the most absurd left wing claims. I mean, actually, the Tory party has been incredibly reluctant to engage the culture war and have finally engaged it a bit after like 12 years. So that was one of her most disingenuous claims.
1: Yeah, no, it's um, it's 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 as though, you know, we're confronting the German army, you know, in the lead-up to the Second World War. Germany invades all these countries, um, uh, and we do absolutely nothing about it in the hope of. Um, signing some kind of peace treaty with the germans and not jeopardizing the future of the empire uh, and eventually you know when they, they 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 just go so far they just take so much territory we eventually declare war on germany and we're the warmongers we've started the war because finally we're drawing a line and saying no we're not going to let you invade any more countries and that's an exa- that, that's exactly their position you know um uh, if you if you if you object in any way to teaching Children under nine, um, gender identity ideology. Um, then you're starting a culture war. You know, we just have to kind of roll over and accept the kind of cultural revolution that they are responsible for. Because the moment we Pipe up with the mildest of objections. Are you sure children as young as five should be taught there are twenty-seven different types of gender uh, and that sex is assigned at birth? Um, uh, suddenly we are we are right-wing culture warriors who are trying to start a fight because we're just belligerent and aggressive and unreasonable. It's yeah. It's a, it, it, but maybe they do. I mean, maybe it's a deliberate tactic to enrage us in the hope that we'll then be less sensible and rational when trying to respond because it is infuriating
0: that is pretty much the nature of gaslighting yeah where where um, divisive cock start stoking culture wars <laughs> but yeah it's a good analogy with with, with hitler i like that i thought was that was that was that was very good should we move on and do our occasional feature it's birdwatch. now i noticed our brilliant producer jason last week unilaterally put in a bird watch i wasn't even intending it was the elon musk versus james clayton story which kind of was a bird because it was on twitter spaces but i thought it was a bigger story in transcended birdwatch, but this is an official birdwatch because I've said the words. So this is um, Matt Walsh was hacked and I should have brought them up actually, but a series of strange tweets came out from him. My pronouns are that slash N word. um, And it didn't say N word and uh, Joe Rogan is a pedophile. And there were various other claims that tip people off to the fact that Matt might not be tweeting as himself. And obviously it's kind of funny in a way, but it's obviously not funny at all. What was notable was that every word was Capitalized, I noticed, when he was saying these things, he in inverted commas the hacker, and um, that was one thing people didn't seem to pick up on that they knew it wasn't Matt Walsh because of what he was saying under the, the, what the account was saying. But who capitalizes every word of the sentence if it's not a title? Very bizarre. So he was hacked. Do
1: you think his? Do you think his Twitter password was top man? <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, it was too easy, Matt. Why you? You should have at least put top man thirty six or something. Yeah, shocking. Toby was right in there. (laughs) Yeah, hacking has moved on a bit since your hacking days, Toby. It's pretty pretty nasty stuff now, because he now has to have twenty four hour security. You know, they they then tweeted out a picture of his phone uh, or his phone number, not his actual phone, but you know, you don't need the actual phone to do this stuff. And it's very sinister and it's very much there to sort of, you feel it's there to deter people from, I mean, you think, yeah, I'd like to be Matt Walsh. He's doing really well in, in the culture war and he's a, a, you know, he's got a lot of followers and maybe people think they'd like to emulate him, but then they think, oh, I don't think you want to get hacked. I mean, imagine. So someone got in and they got all his emails and direct messages. And shockingly, this guy, I think it was Del Cameron from Wired magazine, tried to actually get hold of this information. He was tweeting about it. It was like, anyone got the Matt Walsh stuff, send it to me. And as Walsh has said, at least one journalist openly solicited my stolen information. The hacker did an interview with that journalist who works for the publication Wired. The hacker showed the journalist my tax documents, some pictures, and some of my old emails. The article directly quoted quotes one of my private emails, though it contained nothing salacious or even mildly interesting. The only interesting revelation in the article is that the hacker had help from an unspecified insider We have independently found other evidence which also points in that direction. However, he did it with... Anyway, blah, blah. He goes on and says they'll be punished. So they're going to launch a full-scale legal assault. I guess he doesn't say who it is in that piece, so maybe I shouldn't tie that with the name of the Wired person. But anyway, there's a Wired journalist. And um, what do you think about this, uh, Toby? Any thoughts?
1: You know, I do think that um, it is a a very unwelcome development that um, a mainstream journalist seemingly working for a respectable mainstream publication has reached out to the hacker and said please share any compromising information you managed to find out about Matt Walsh with me because I'd like to run a story about it uh, I mean that's going to incentivize other people to hack the phones of people like Matt Walsh and the Twitter accounts and try and find information if they think it's perfectly perfectly legitimate to pass on this information to journalists and that becomes a legitimate source for mainstream journalists wanting to published stories, smearing people like Matt Walsh, then that, that that's going to you know encourage a lot of other people. And that's a really dangerous development.
0: What's so disturbing, apart from the idea that, that people's information will just be released all, all around the place, is the motivation for this. It's because Matt Walsh, okay, he does it in a certain fairly uncompromising way, but he's actually trying to protect children from people telling them they can change gender at, at 16 and so on. Which is incredibly damaging and horrific for them, and and, and doesn't go well, and and, and in fact, uh, someone just died because they were trying to make genitals out of their colon. We horrific stories like this are happening all the time, and the motivation of the people that are doing it is so demonic and grotesque. I mean, imagine that you're you see Matt Walsh trying to attack this this trans cult and the idea of you know transing children, and your response is that we have to get him. I mean, isn't that quite disturbing? Is it? Is it because of just his style and the way he does it?
1: Yeah, I think he probably. You know, I, I guess he he he, without wanting to victim blame, he turned himself into a high profile target by, you know, um, taking that extra step and being um, more aggressive and belligerent than many of the people on the same side as him in the culture war, and you know, ridiculing. Mean, he sort of. Ridiculed the appearance of Dylan Mulvaney, didn't he? I mean, we've done that too, but he started it um, (laughs) in in a kind of in a kind of seemingly very uncharitable way. Um, uh, And uh, I think people, many people on our side, I think we discussed it, felt that that was crossing a line. uh, And he obviously defended himself. Um, uh, He's also been demonetized by YouTube, hasn't he? So he had a very successful YouTube channel and. and he's just been demonetized, and as a consequence, he's what he's going to join the Daily Wire. But he read a good Twitter thread, didn't he, about um, about about the various efforts being made by big tech to um, no platform him to defund him. Yeah, he's already um, part of the Daily, Daily Wire, because- of course.
0: But they're going to put out the episodes for free on Twitter. Is one of the things they're doing, which I was alluding to earlier. You can now do that with Twitter Blue, of course. So, and he says they've had incredible numbers putting out the whole episode. Yeah, he was demonetized. And it seems very much like the attack on Tate when Tate was suddenly taken down from everything. You know, it's a matrix attack. It's another matrix attack. You get hacked, you get demonetized. You know, why does this all happen at once? We have to question. It does seem suspicious that all this... There's been a, a, a you know, a sort of... It seems coordinated. I don't know who can say if the hacker's coordinated, but, the, you know, when, when people get canceled, it seems to all come at once in a very suspicious way. Just on the other thing... And I guess this,
1: I, this, oh, this, 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 this goes back to... The point I made in our original discussion about Tucker Carlson is that um, Matt Walsh made himself vulnerable by effectively um, relying on YouTube um, to uh, get his message out there, because YouTube is largely an advertiser-funded platform. So, if your if your if your business model is to make money from Monetizing your YouTube channel, you are going to be vulnerable to these activist attacks much better um, to be part of something like the Daily Wire, um, which is a subscription based company. Um, And, you know, Matt Walsh presumably now will, will, if he doesn't already, um, sell up a Substack, Patreon, solicit donations, um, sell premium subscriptions, and so forth, so he becomes less vulnerable to these kind of activist attacks.
0: Yeah, well, I believe they're hoping that it'll... I mean, I've th- thought about putting my videos on Twitter. Like I say, it's it's annoying because then people attack them more. But they said here on the Matt Walsh Show Twitter account, wow, not only was the first live stream on Twitter a success, but our show climbed the streaming charts, ranking number three on Spotify, five on Apple in news. So they're sort of saying that actually you, we might be able to get bigger numbers from this. And if, if Musk can monetize, and there is a monetization thing on Twitter now, but I'm not on the latest version. I always hate updating that because they've always changed something. when It's always weird. So I've not updated, but you can now monetize your Twitter. I mean, you've been able to for a while, I think. But so if they can if they can release it through Twitter, where of course he has a million followers, maybe it can work. One point seven million. Maybe he, they can build it on there instead. Just quickly on the um, the idea of him becoming a target. I, I still think he was right the way he attacked on the transition because it's just so serious and because children are involved. And I think being soft on the culture war has not worked for us. And you know, Winston Marshall, who's a good guy, who's on my other podcast, he. Um, he was. <laughs> I'm annoying myself. Definitely now. the last mention. Definitely the
1: last mention. Yeah, <laughs> he,
0: actually said, um, he actually said. He actually said. He he criticized Matt Walsh for that, as did obviously um, Constantine and Francis. But I think they were wrong. I think he was, he was right to do it because it, the stakes are just so high. But obviously, it's put him in this in this yeah in this position of being attacked by hackers. So pretty, pretty horrendous. Unless there's anything else on that, should we just talk about Musk quickly? Musk. And the blue ticks, and I'll get your thoughts on this. So, Musk, well, one thing he did, which was a bird watch, is that he took out the misgendering rule on Twitter, and that, that's no longer a reason that you'll get banned from Twitter. That, that was a change. He also took away the blue ticks, the legacy blue ticks, they all disappeared on April 20th, and, um, and all, there was all kinds of whining about it and meltdowns from the celebrities. Jason Alexander from Seinfeld's like, I won't be tweeting anymore. And I was like, I mean, this guy was getting paid a million an episode or something at the end of Seinfeld. Like, you can't afford $8. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. But of course, it's become this thing to virtue signal to your side. Owen Jones and people like this all having to say, I didn't pay for this tick in case their comrades all pile on them. They have to say, I didn't pay for this, guys. This weird kind of virtue, reverse virtue signal of some kind of bizarre. They coveted the blue tick days ago, and now they have to disassociate themselves from the blue tick. And then must just to throw a spanner in the works, seemingly, paid for LeBron's blue tick and Stephen King's, who's criticized him a lot, and William Shatner's Just Those Three, which was hilarious trolling. I thought it'd Is it, even, just, is it just, those, just those three? Initially, it was just those three. And they're the only ones he revealed, at least. It, it would have been even funnier maybe just to just leave it as Shatner for no reason. But, but um, that was pretty <laughs> funny because Stephen King is like, I didn't pay for this. I didn't pay for this. And Musk admitted he had paid for it. But then later, he seemed to just give them back to everyone, maybe thinking he'd miscalculated. And one of my takes was, this is a guy who launches a rocket. It blows up. And he just goes, "Oh, interesting experiment. We learned a lot." You know, he's used to dealing on that scale. So some celebrities whining, "Oh, I've switched off the boutique. Oh, they have whined. I've switched it back on. Let's see what they do now." To me, that's the kind of scale. That's not that hard to believe, is it?
1: Yeah. I, well, I, I, I'm not sure it was just tr- you know Musk being playful and crawling the libs. Um, I, I mean, his—he—I he, think he's very serious about wanting to switch Twitter from being an advertising-supported platform to a subscription-based platform for very sensible reasons, because you need to do that if it's going to become the digital town square of prioritized free speech. Um, but in order for that model to work, I guess people have to want a blue tick. And the reason people have been, I think something like 650,000 people have signed up for you know, Twitter blue so far, but presumably in part, not just because like us, they want to be able to post longer videos, um, but also because they want, they associate the blue tick with prestige, with status. It's a status symbol. So if you then take away the blue tick from all these celebs, so the only blue ticks on the site are from, you know, wannabes who've paid for them, um, then the blue tick ceases to become a high status symbol and becomes a low status symbol, which is why people are like Owen Jones, were kind of protesting that they hadn't paid for their blue ticks. They didn't want to be seen as these wannabes who wanted to appear that they'd been granted this impremature because they're important and not because they paid for it. Um, and uh, so I think Musk almost had to give back some of the blue ticks to kind of retain the desirability of having a blue tick in order to, and I've continued to sell blue ticks to people. Um, I mean, I think there are very good reasons for buying a blue tick and not just because you get to post longer videos. I also think if you support free speech, you should do it. Um, but, um, you know, you can see why he felt his hand was forced. If all the celebs were complaining that it was just people in the losers club now who had blue ticks, that would, I imagine, um, hit sales of blue ticks quite badly so he's now got to kind of muddy the waters a bit blur the line make it unclear whether you've paid for it or whether it's an honorific in order to maintain its kind of association with being a vip on twitter
0: yeah i always wondered when he first talked about doing this if it was a miscalculation you always thought well what value will the blue tick have if it's just a question of paying a small amount of money for it and then he thought, well, Musk is so smart, it must be some sort of 4D chess, which it still might be. But then another part of he goes, oh, is Musk so sort of Asperger's, as he admits, that he actually doesn't really think about things like social status? He has much loftier goals, like getting to Mars. So it's quite hard for him, someone on his level, to understand the mind of a Jason Alexander or an Owen Jones, who are just totally driven by status. I mean, Joe, Owen Jones even called the new Blue Tick people losers. Bit of a mask-off moment again for the left there, like these loser scum you know, they want their status. They want to be the elite, and maybe Moss just doesn't understand that genuinely.
1: Maybe, maybe. Um, it, I, there was there was a kind of it was it was it was sort of a wonderful pantomime watching people like Owen Jones um, uh, kind of bleating when their blue ticks were removed and protesting that they'd never paid for them in the first place and wouldn't dream of paying for one again. Uh, it was as though you know they were pretending that 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 having blue tick status had meant absolutely nothing to them. They were completely indifferent to it. They, had, they hadn't they had solicited it in any way. It had just been awarded to them out of the blue. Uh, when, of course, you know, they absolutely reveled in their blue tick status and were absolutely furious when it was removed and then petulantly maintained that they weren't going to pay for it and it never meant anything to them. Very and, implausible.
0: And many of them, not saying Owen Jones, but many of them actually did pay ludicrous sums behind the scenes for them. So that's another reason people are not allegedly. Um, but yeah, I never rule out Musk being the genius that has a, a plan much greater than I can conceive of. So it may be f- f- at five or 60 chess, who knows? Um, and what did you think to Jack Dorsey launching a Twitter alternative blue sky on Android? I made a joke that um, basically it will be full of feds. I posted that picture, famous picture of the feds at the barbecue. I just said, can't wait to get on Jack Dorsey's new app and interact with like-minded ordinary citizens. I mean, this is the guy that allowed Twitter to descend into a, a sort of Fed-ridden, you know, anti-free speech, weird, controlled by the government platform. And now he's off to Blue Sky. Or will it be the Jack, sort of the good Jack, who sort of just wants things to be free and open? And I don't know, any thoughts on that?
1: No, no thought. I haven't, I haven't followed that at all, I'm afraid.
0: Oh, well, he's launched Blue Sky and let's see what happens with it then <laughs> that's that's Jack Dorsey it's a that's what Lewis Schaefer would call a nan story on headliners but I think I think it might turn into something but let's see um, I think that's pretty much it from Birdwatch should we move on and do everyone's favourite section which of course is Peak Woke
1: so my I think uh yeah so I'll, I'll I'll just do one peak work this week um which is um because it's quite a long show but um and plus I have to go on my tour of the Banff National Park which is um embarking um uh, in thirty minutes um so um my peak work this week is Kathleen stock um. Uh, There's an attempt to, so she's she's been booked in to speak at the Oxford Union. I don't think it's in a debate. I think she's just giving a talk, but there will be an opportunity for people in the audience to ask questions and engage in discussion and debate with her. Um, And this has caused outrage um, uh, uh, in Oxford. And the Oxford LGBTQ plus society has condemned the union for platforming this um, bigot. Turf um, transphobe um, and demanded that um, she be no platformed, and this has now become quite a big story in the press. Um, but that just seemed to me to be absolutely tip- a typical reaction of trans rights activists and their allies. I mean, they 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 still they are still they still think that the way to win the argument. Is to just refuse to debate with people on the other side and just try and smear them as bigots and turfs and transphobes. You think the penny would have dropped that that strategy isn't really working for them? I mean, you know, this government has rode back on gender recognition reform. Nicola Sturgeon got into an absolute. Pickle on this issue by being on the wrong side of this issue. The Tavistock is closing. The DFE is about to issue new guidance about how schools should deal with adolescents with gender dysphoria. It's all going the wrong way from their point of view. They're losing this argument in the public square. And the reason they're losing it is because they're just refusing to engage. They think cancel culture, uh, outrage, f- f- Faux offense is the way to win this argument, and it's just not working for them. I mean, they're, they're they're so tone deaf. This is a really good opportunity. I mean, Kathleen Stock is an incredibly articulate exponent of the gender critical point of view, and you know, um, she's a former professor of philosophy, and she's very calm, very reasonable, very willing to engage in an open debate with her opponents on this issue, this is a perfect opportunity for them to actually set out their argument. Why is it you think that the Gender Recognition Act should be reformed? Why should trans women be admitted to single-sex hospital wards to girls changing rooms to women's refuges, compete against women in women's sports, make the argument. The reason you're losing this argument in the public square is because people don't know what the other side think, because you refuse to set it out. You refuse to articulate it. You refuse to discuss it and debate it. It's just mad. So yeah, that was my Pete woke for this week.
0: Yeah. It's a good one, but they, they, of course, don't care about debate, as we saw f- from the Reeves mogg debate, so-called inverted commas. They don't care about debate. They care about just winning by any means necessary and crushing the opponent, and they can't debate. And debate is sort of inherent to some sort of system they don't agree with anyway, they would say, no doubt. So probably white supremacy or something. But uh, my Wokes are just a couple. Stephen Colbert gets called racist for playing a didgeridoo. Pretty low bar now, isn't it? We have. I mean, I mean, to me, maybe I'm a big racist. That seems one of the most innocuous things you can do. He played a didgeridoo as a very light hearted joke about Australia. This is this is all the, the comedy you can do now on the woke side. But you can't even do this because someone replied, "Oh great, Colbert, can you be more racist?" Someone else, "God damn, there are cultural rules around whom can and can't play a didge." Hey, Colbert, this ain't it. And there's, anyway, just a general Twitter meltdown about playing a didgeridoo. I mean, and then seemingly, uh I haven't read the whole article, but they ended by saying, let's just leave the sacred instrument alone, shall we? Really? You can't play a didgeridoo anymore. Maybe I'm out of touch, Toby. Maybe that is the height of cultural appropriations. I thought that was pretty peak woke to me. The other one I thought I'd go for is this glam and drag camp. So there was a glam and drag camp where children are encouraged to create alter egos for themselves, and go and do drag. And this took place in Doncaster. Is there anything more grim than a drag camp in Doncaster where they sort of take your kids? I mean, something quite sinister about a camp, they're always trying to get children away, like don't tell your parents about sex education in schools and things like that. There's these campaigns to not make sure your parents can't be told. There's these weird creeps on the internet saying don't tell your parents. And now the idea of a camp to me just seems a bit... Sinister, and this was also taxpayers' money went into it. Miriam Kate said, I think we need to ask serious questions. It's highly disturbing to see taxpayer money is being used to pay for this. Why is taxpayer money going to a child drag camp in Doncaster,
1: Toby? Yeah, no, that's um, that's pretty insane. Um, uh, if, if, if 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 it was being run by the late great Dame Edna Everidge. It'll be fine, obviously, yeah. Um, but yeah, it isn't. Um, I, I, you've done too, so I'll bring up one more, which is, um, I don't know if you saw this story, uh, it was actually in today's Telegraph, um, an art museum in Cambridge, the Fitzwilliam has removed um, a painting by Sir Stanley Spencer called Love Among the Nations. Uh, now, this painting, and there's a nice picture of it on the Telegraph's website, depicts um, interracial sexual relationships, uh, It was painted in 1935, so you know white men uh, are making love with black women and vice versa, Uh, and those are the hence the title "Love Among the Nations." Quite shocking. He was a kind of slightly eccentric Christian who believed in free love, so um, it it doesn't depict it in a kind of um, you know dystopian way. This is this is a kind of um, seemingly a kind of uh, uh, a utopian vision that that he's painted, Um, and obviously kind of caused uproar when it was painted and first displayed in 1935 because racial miscegenation. But now the reason that Fitzwilliam has removed it um, is because apparently he's guilty of indulging in racial stereotypes, not not in his portraiture of the white people in the pictures, but of the black people in the pictures. Um, uh, and um, it just struck me as just completely ridiculous. I mean, yeah, obviously not the first time we've encountered um, art galleries censoring great works of art because they they conflict with current you know mores and woke orthodoxies but it's kind of what is the what is the kind of broader vision here of what an art gallery should be I mean if the paintings on the walls in galleries in museums like the Fitzwilliam are just supposed to reflect our own values our own present day values back to us then going to a gallery is like Walking through a hall of mirrors. I mean, that's not the point, is it? Of of what a, what a what a museum, an art museum should be doing. Surely, art is supposed to be disturbing and unsettling, and it's supposed to prompt us to question, you know, the prevailing orthodoxies uh, of the present day. But no, nowadays, if anything in any way uh, doesn't conform to you know the current thing whatever that might be changes every 10 minutes as we know then it gets removed it gets censored this is this is the wokes version of the you know the Nazi dismissal of degenerate art it's dismissing art for completely ideological reasons because you know it doesn't conform to your own particular ideological viewpoint which seems to me to be a particularly philistine way of judging a painting anyway
0: what's hilarious there is you accidentally plugged my podcast a current thing again you said the current thing i was like now toby's Damn. doing it uh, but yeah that's such a gen x view toby how naive of you art is there to protect us from harm that's what it's there for so how dare you but yeah all right pretty good pete wokes there choose your favorite or which you think gets weak poke and that is pretty much the show i mean it's It's an over two-hour show, and I think that makes up for the fact that we were a day late to some degree, right? It's going to be a bumper nearly two and a half hours. Could be our longest yet. Yeah, and and I've been quite impressed by your um, reception. Your internet connection is actually better than it is in your shed at home in like a mountain in Canada (laughs) with snow around it. I mean, what does that suggest? I mean, what the heck is going on? You need to sort that. I think
1: I'm paying too much for my internet connection at home is what that tells me.
0: Normally during the pocket, you're a sort of blur when, I, when I'm on the video call during the podcast, you were blur in a shed. And now in Canada, in the Rockies, you're like ultra crisp. It's like, you know, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Um, so we've done an long episode. Thank you for all your reviews. Like the podcast, uh, subscribe to it on all platforms. Well, not all platforms, but your chosen platform. And uh, tell tell people about the podcast. We're doing so well. We got 24K in a, in a week on our last episode. I haven't checked. It might be more than that now, but... It, in the week, it got 24,000, which is extraordinary. And that is actually top 1% of podcasts in the world, well into the top 1%, because audio downloads are hard to come by. It's not like YouTube and things. And I've been informed by industry professionals. We are well, well into the top 1%. So thank you very much to everyone that listens. Thanks for your reviews. Someone here has said that um, Dick Nixon provides much-needed light relief, <laughs> but remains nevertheless remains an apprentice to the master that is James Dellingpole. So that's a review, Toby. It doesn't even mention you in that review, but also I come off not that great. Basically, James has won that review. So we've got a few team right. James <laughs> fans, but we've got loads of great reviews as well about us. Don't worry. But that was just the latest one, which I thought was funny. But um, come to Weekly Skeptic Live. It's almost sold out. Uh, it's going ahead on May 20th, completely separate from Toby's evil lockdown file show, which I disavow and had nothing to do with but the weekly skeptic is live is still happening at the Emanuel Centre May 20th all the vip's are sold out but you can get a a, a still very special ticket for 25 pounds and there's only a few left because we we we're, we're only doing it in the uh, well what do you think what do you think so we do not say exactly how many we're selling but we've sold a lot but, we're, but there's only a few left we Sold a
1: lot and yeah vip tickets are sold out so um yeah and if anyone wants to come to the weekly skeptic's so on May 20th as you say it's going to be at the Emanuel Centre in Westminster, very easy access from St. James's Tube and Westminster Tube. Um, uh, anyone wants to come, go to um, eventbrite.co.uk. I think you've said .com in the past. It's eventbrite.co.uk oh. Whoops. and search for uh, The Weekly Skeptic and um, you can still buy £25 tickets. Um, and since you've plugged your podcast um, at least half a dozen times, Nick. Um, <laughs> I think I, I'm now going to take this opportunity to plug um, the Lockdown Files Live, in which Isabel Oakshot and I will be discussing uh, Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages, which form the basis of the Telegraph's Lockdown Files story. Um, and um, we're going to break up. It's also at the Manual Center. It's on June the 10th, uh, £25 tickets uh, on sale that you can go to eventbrite.co.uk, search for the lockdown files live, and you'll find you'll, you'll, you'll be able to buy tickets that way. Uh, but as an added bonus, we're going to have some comic interludes in which um, we're going to get actors to read out some of the more um, scandalous passages from the WhatsApp exchanges, and um, uh, Lawrence Fox will be playing. Matt Hancock so that should be quite entertaining um and that's on June 10th also at the Emanuel Centre in Westminster
0: and what do you have do you have anything to say about the backlash against this Toby there was a very unfair backlash against you on Twitter where some of the ultra purists sort of on our side were sort of saying that you were somehow I don't know taking advantage of lockdown files I mean the prices are higher than Weekly Skeptic but um was it the prices? Was it did people misunderstand the event?
1: No, the, the price for a, a regular ticket is the same; it's just twenty five pounds. VIP tickets, and then we've, we've got dinner tickets. So if you want to have dinner afterwards at Unheard with Isabel and me and Lawrence, um, uh, you can buy you can buy tickets to do that too. And there are still some, a few left of those. Um, yeah, I, I didn't really understand it. It's like you know, how journalists have got to make money. Um, uh, how are we supposed to support ourselves if um, if 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 we don't charge for events like this? And you know. It's not as though renting the Emanuel Center and promoting the event is free. I mean, um, let's hope we break even, but it's not a foregone conclusion. So I didn't really understand this kind of grifting accusation. It's always an accusation thrown out by your enemies whenever you, you know, try and make a living. But, you know, we're freelance journalists. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not under contract with anyone. Um, I have to earn a living. Um, if, you, if, you, if you disapprove of paying to see me talk about the lockdown files with Isabel, don't buy a ticket. But um, yeah. you know, don't say I shouldn't be allowed to sell them.
0: Yeah, it is odd. I mean, I always think that. I mean, everything we do is like a grift. It's like, okay, so you're not allowed to make money from media. What is your stance? And it's like it is very strange that maybe it's because they, they think Isabel was sort of pro the first lockdown or something and then changed her mind or something like that. I don't know, but there's a definitely a purity spiral going on on, on some of our, our sort of our side. And then some of the other side just want to stick the boot in as well. Did seem a bit harsh. But just for the record, I had nothing to do with that idea, and it's separate from the Weekly Skeptic. <laughs> <laughs> it's completely separate from the Weekly Skeptic Live, which can is I amazing. Go, let's,
1: can, can I just take could I take this opportunity to say that um uh, the current thing is nothing to do with me. I in no way share the opinions of the, the parade of nuts and conspiracy theorists that Nick has on that show. Yeah. Anyway.
0: Yeah. Although I mean, I mean, although Winston Marshall won't be thrilled because I think his dad pretty much pays your wages at GB, so He won't be thrilled that you he, he think he's a conspiracy theorist. But yeah, the current thing. Thanks for mentioning it. Available on all audio platforms. I'm amazed that people aren't listening to it in the same numbers as Weekly Skeptic. They just haven't got around to it. They can't. With that many people told me it, just like you you know okay five to ten people might be listening to this there's, there's, just there's, for
1: you but there's, there's no no I think there's this clearly a vital missing ingredient <laughs> I, I wonder what it is Nick <laughs> well I'll have to could be that. that one.
0: <laughs> could be that let's but let, yeah, let's see maybe uh,
1: interview me on the current thing interview me on the current thing see uh, how that episode does and just
0: gets a massive spike <laughs> yeah and it, it was Toby all along okay we'll do that we'll try that <laughs> for science um all right well it's been a very long episode hope that made up for the tardiness Which was fairly understandable because Toby was trapped in the Canadian mountains. And and I think that's it for this week. So until next week, stay sceptical.
1: Stay sceptical.